We are back with another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I am your host, Jack Johnson, out here live at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. Dylan Michaels back in the studio and a full three-hour show for you here tonight with plenty of guests to join. We'll be talking college basketball. We'll be talking some NFL, some Super Bowl leftovers with, of course, Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network from 8 to 9. We'll have Braden Turner joining us at 7.30 talking KU hoops. And then Max Reaper of Royals Review will join us at 9.30 tonight. But to kick off our show, we will begin it with a guest and our guy for all things K-State athletics. It'll be Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Ryan, thanks for taking the time to come on the show tonight. Jack, I appreciate you having me on as always, man. Now, Ryan, I was following along last night, of course, on TV, but through Twitter as well, and more importantly through your Twitter account. And I thought it was interesting that at the tail end of the game last night, you tweeted out basically to sum it up that you felt like this was the most complete game Kansas State had played in their 75-65 win over the ninth-ranked Baylor Bears. Walk me through that a little bit. K-State's had some very big wins this year. You think about the one back in Austin when they put up 116 in regulation over Texas, their overtime thriller against Baylor and Waco, their overtime thriller against Kansas in Manhattan. But why last night? was the most impressive performance for Jerome Tang's squad. If you look at just the offensive output from those games, like you mentioned the KU game on the road at Baylor and Texas, sure, those games are, are definitely more impressive than what we saw on Tuesday night. But just from you know start to finish, kind of both ends of the court, this felt like Kansas State's you know, probably one of the best wins, if not the best win. And, and there's a few reasons why. I think first and foremost, Kansas State, had just seven turnovers. That was a season low for the Wildcats compared to 20 assists for Kansas State. That was the most that Kansas State had in over a month. So, you know, the, the Cats didn't shoot the ball well from deep. It's not like they just were, were, were shooting it good. And, you know, it, they had to facilitate points. And the offense, you know, like I said, 20 assists really did a good job of, of creating ways to score. And the best. Uh, defensive team in the world you know they're, they're probably a better offensive team but for Kansas State to really just play well from start to finish both ends of the court you know it felt like the most complete game um, that Kansas State had really played this year because you look at those 90 some point outings 116 point outings against Texas and Baylor right that was you know great on offense but the defense was really not existent and in turn allowed them to score so many points, right? So, you know, this was a very good Big 12 basketball game. I also said that, you know, this just kind of felt like Big 12 basketball at its finest, and and Kansas State stacked wins. They got two games in a row that they've won for the first time in about a month. So three games left in the regular season. I'm sure we'll peek ahead at the rest of the schedule here in a second, Jack. But, you know, I think this was an important one to to get a win over a top-10 team. This was an important one for Jerome Tang going up against his, you know, former team with Baylor. But but also this one was just important, uh, that the fact that it started a winning streak. Now turnovers, as you pointed out, have been a problem for Kansas State this year. But last night, only seven turnovers to Baylor's 13. Is that maybe, I guess I would call it, the deciding factor for this team and how far they make it in March that maybe it's not so much how well they shoot it from deep because last night they shoot less than 20% at 19, uh, just 4 of 21 for the Cats from deep, but they took care of the basketball. And to me it feels like when this Kansas State team does take care of the basketball, 
they're just about as good as anybody else in this conference. And last night we saw that uh, pretty much dominating Baylor in the second half. So I ask you that if this team is to go far in March, is it more so that they're taking care of the basketball, or is there another reason as to why they can go further in March? It's a lot easier said than done to take care of the basketball, right? If Kansas State turns it over just seven times, you know, in every game this season, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to lose a game when you when you take care of the ball that much, right? I wouldn't say it's been K-State's Achilles heel, so to speak, but it's definitely been um, probably the one of the worst parts of K-State's game, right? It's just the turnovers. And so, you know, Keontae Johnson on Tuesday really returned to his former self with 25 points, and he kind of hit a wall. Uh, the last, you know, three weeks maybe where the Big 12 was just getting tough on him. It was hard to score. He, you know, maybe he needed to lock in a little bit more. Who knows? But but Johnson really played well on Tuesday against Baylor. The turnovers were down. You know, there's going to be different factors that go into K-State making a deep run. But, you know, Jack, I'm sure I've said this on the show with you before, but Kansas State, you go up against a guy like Eddie Lampkin, you know, a big post player down low if, if – if, uh, an opponent has a, a nice player like that in March Madness. That could be a tough draw for Kansas State, but let's give credit to what the Wildcats did last night. You know, Baylor's a very physical team. You know, that's kind of what you think of when you think of Baylor basketball. You think of those strong, long, lengthy, athletic big men down low in the paint. Kansas State obviously winning it by double digits. We, you know, with David Gasson being banged up and overall just you know, not the best interior play, I think that's an encouraging sign. So, if Kansas State, it's obviously a lot easier said than done, of course. But Wildcats play the way they did against Baylor on Tuesday. You know, they legitimately can't hang with any team in the country. But you look at the the month of January, later January and early February for Kansas State, you know, we've seen how low the floor can be. But, you know, as of the last two games, I think we've seen that this team's ceiling is, you know, pretty high. We're talking with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com, talking some K-State hoops to open up the show. You brought up Keontae Johnson, and last night he was nearly flawless, 25 points on 17 shots, also had four assists in the game. But you go back to that loss to Oklahoma, I believe it would have been last week, maybe the week before that, but I was seeing some talk on Twitter from a lot of K-State beat writers, K-State fans saying, you know what, they were fantastic to start the year, but now you're maybe seeing the fatigue set in a little bit. And I believe it was Tim Fitzgerald of GoPowerCat.com that said, you know, sometimes this is the effect of sitting out for two years. But since that game, of course, Keontae Johnson has been K-State's best player. So I ask you, if is that a concern going into March Madness that maybe Keontae Johnson, you know, having not playing for two years and then having such a long season that continues in the postseason, he could wear down? Or has he just shown the last couple of games that, yeah, he may go through a bad stretch where he looks fatigued, but who's not fatigued at this point in the season? Overall on the season, I think Keontae Johnson, it's very fair to say that he shows up for the bigger games, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's, I mean, I, I guess you could probably look at his, numbers against KU and Texas and all, you know, Baylor, I, I'm sure you could look at that up and maybe I'm wrong, but it just, you kind of get that sense that Keontae Johnson kicks up his game a notch when the competition gets yeah. tough, right? He lives for those big games. So maybe he got a little complacent, but, but yeah, absolutely. He, you know, and I think Tang would actually agree with what we're talking about right now. He mentioned this post game last night against Baylor. He mentioned this post game against Oklahoma that he needs to find ways to give his guys rest. And it sounds like maybe they were working them just a little bit too hard in practice, and the staff has done a great job of 
shortening practices, you know, keeping their legs fresh. Uh, and I think that that's made a difference here over the last couple of games, not just for Johnson, but, you know, really for the entire team. And how much of Johnson's success is directly, you know, a cause of just, you know, having less stress and practices, stress on your body, all that stuff. Who knows? But I'm sure it's helping. But, but yeah, Johnson really was, you know, kind of slumping for a little while. And obviously he's got a, you know, good teams are obviously going to have a chance to make a run in March Madness. But like we were talking about earlier, the teams that can click here as we head into March in the Big 12 tournament in the first round of, of March Madness, right? Like once you're clicking at the right time, it feels like, you know, that's the time that you need to have everything some, you know, come together because Kansas State starting off Big 12 play 4-0 things came together at that point in time and then they really did go through some go through some hardships and they didn't let that be the high point of their season though they've come back with back-to-back wins and if they can stack up some more wins um you know the ceiling does get raised but of course that that does start with uh Keontae Johnson you know Ryan I think you would have to be the one to take ownership and spearheading the new starting five for Kansas State as <laughs> Desi Sills move from the bench to that starting spot. So is Desi Sills there to stay, or will, will, will it be more so of a matchup thing as they move into March into postseason play? You know what, Jack? First and foremost, I, I, I want people to car- start calling me Coach Gilbert because I, <laughs> I truly did take a part in that. But, no, I, I think Kansas State really did try to just go kind of smaller, and it wasn't working out with um, David Gasson, who's just been banged up. He was sick last week and then he's been dealing with an ankle injury so he's a great player and I'm not trying to take anything away from what he does you know did in the non-conference and all that stuff but he has not been the same player and then Bebe really is just a backup reserve role player and and that's what he's asked to do he does a, a solid job at that but he's not really a starter in the Big 12 and so I think Tang and his staff kind of looked at it and said hey Naquan Salmon, that's a long, lengthy, athletic guy. Same thing with Keontae Johnson. That dude's a beast, you know. They've got enough size on the court to where they can afford to have a guy like Desi Sills out there. Maybe Desi Sills was working extra hard in practice and earned that spot. I, I You know, maybe, but I, I think it was more or less this Kansas State um, wanting to, to maybe go a little bit smaller and, and, and get better consistency from Desi Sills as the season nears its end, but who knows where the truth is? I'd love to take credit for it, but I think by the end of the day, Tang's you know comments were just <laughs> more or less a joke. We're talking with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com, and I think, Ryan, the last time we talked when they faced Baylor was after the overtime win in Waco, and I think we discussed the idea of you know how big of a role did Jerome Tang play while he was at Baylor, and now he's undefeated against Scott Drew in his first series, and maybe we'll see a round three matchup in Kansas City, but... I now ask you the same question, revisit this a little bit and say, really, was it Jerome Tang behind the scenes doing a lot more than maybe people anticipated, or does Scott Drew still deserve some credit for the success of Baylor over the last dec- or two decades of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some truth to both ends of that, right? There's probably a middle ground somewhere, and this is actually interesting. We talked about this on our PowerCat podcast that will go live tomorrow, but just, you know, Scott Drew in general, right? Like, Jerome Tang is just a outgoing, you know, the spotlight's on him now that he's a head coach at Kansas State, and, you know, I'm sure he loves it, right? He loves engaging with fans, and it's crazy. But, you know, like after games, he'll go to the student section and, and start dancing with them, all this stuff, right? We've all seen it on social media, but it's crazy because you see that, what he's done in Manhattan, 
And when he was at, at Baylor at Waco, it's like nobody really knew who this guy was, right? Because I, I think it says a lot about Jerome Tang, the way he kind of truly was Scott Drew's right-hand man, and he kind of took a step back and didn't want to steal the spotlight and let Scott Drew run his team and, and, and kind of get all the recognition that you get with winning. And now that Tang is a head coach, we're seeing him, you know, really kind of become the focal point of a, of a basketball team, kind of the face of a basketball team, I guess. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, yeah, I'm sure it's probably a little bit of both. Scott Drew's a really, really good coach. We're seeing that, um, especially without Jerome Tang, you know, an 0-3 start in Big 12 play. There were some questions about the Bears, but – and I know that Baylor's lost two in a row now, right, to, to Kansas State and Kansas back-to-back. But, you know, by and large, Baylor's still having a very good season without Jerome Tang. But – you know, I, I do wonder, did, did Scott Drew just purposely lose on Tuesday night just to let Jerome Thing have a win? <laughs> the world will never know. <laughs> you look at the final three games for Kansas State. They're on the road in Stillwater this Saturday. They'll be back home for senior day against Oklahoma and then finish up the regular season in Morgantown against West Virginia. And Joe Lunardi's most recent bracketology has Kansas State as a three seed. I guess what needs to happen, Ryan, to solidify that three seed? Can they move up any higher to maybe a two? And how can they maybe avoid slipping to a four or a five seed? These three games coming up are very winnable games. You look at, you know, none of them are ranked. And Kansas State beat Oklahoma State in Manhattan. They'll be wanting revenge against the Sooners with that final home game. But that's also a West Virginia team that they beat in Manhattan. So, you know, Kansas State, the expectation, I really think, should be to win if not two, you know, all three of these games. Playing on the road has been tough for the Wildcats, though. They've lost five in a row away from Bramwell's Coliseum after starting off 2-0 and on the road in the Big 12. So, you know, I, I think if Kansas State goes out, wins these three games, you know, you're sitting at, at you know 12-6 and six in the Big 12, and then if they go out and run the table in the Big 12 tournament, you know, maybe they're flirting with a one seed, certainly a two seed at that point. But, I mean – it's tough to, to judge, Jack, because for, for whatever reason, I think the committee really does like Kansas State. And I'm sure Jerome Tang, just the, the energy around this team right now, the way they play, has something to do with that. But after the Wildcats dropped two games back-to-back against Texas Tech and Oklahoma, Kansas State was a three-seed in the bracket reveal that they had, right? That was, I'll be honest, that was kind of shocking to me. I thought Kansas State would be – probably a five or maybe a six seed after those back-to-back losses because Kansas State was seven and six at that time. But since then, they've picked up two ranked wins in a row. And so I think the, the committee really does respect this Kansas State team. Um, you look at what they've done all year, certainly it's impressive. And, and Jerome Tang coming in in year one, it, it's remarkable what he's done. Um, but I think this is probably more of a four or five or a six seed right now just because of the inconsistencies that, that we've seen this season. When Kansas State's playing its best, sure, that's a two-seed or a three-seed, whatever, but by and large, you look at the whole season, I think that the committee, just for some whatever reason, really does like Kansas State, and I think Kansas State's fortunate to have that. You know, I think that Kansas State losing, especially if it's on the road, it's not going to be the end of the world. I think if you lose at home to Oklahoma, that probably really does hurt your resume, but if you lose on the road, I think the committee's made it probably a little clear that it's not the end of the world if you lose away from home. We're talking with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Ryan, for these last couple questions here, I'll do more hypotheticals. And 
in Joe Lunardi's bracketology. He had Kansas State as a three seed in the Midwest region, which would put them, I believe, in Des Moines and then would go on to Kansas City if they were to make it to the Sweet 16 to lead eight. Now, Kansas, they were the one seed in the West region, I believe. Another one also had them in the East region. But I think for Kansas to get the number one overall seed, they would then get the Midwest region. So if it is Kansas is the one seed in the Midwest and Kansas State may be the three in the Midwest as well, and let's say these teams met up in the Sweet 16, which I believe it was a 1v3 matchup, that would be the Sweet 16. Who would you give the edge to in a round three matchup, hell, maybe even a round four matchup in Kansas City? You know, I'd probably give the slight edge to Kansas just because of Bill Self. And if this game's played, it obviously would be played at a neutral you know, site that does not, you know that's only going to be it's only going to be a good thing for Kansas State not to be playing in Allen Fieldhouse, right? That's a tough mm-hmm. place to play. We saw this team get rattled in there, and Kansas just blew out K State. I think it was a 12 point defeat, but that game was not close at all, Jack. And so Kansas obviously, I think, has the edge. And despite what you know, Bill Self lost last year from that championship team. You know, Jalen Wilson still stuck around the DNA. The DNA was kind of still there, right? And I don't want to take anything away from what. Bill Self has done. And I think there's a, a chance he wins Coach of the Year nationally. And if he wins that, you know, I, I don't think I would complain too much about it. But the expectation really is for, for Kansas basketball to win games, right? And that's the standard for KU. And so I know the Jayhawks lost three in a row at, earlier in this year. But, you know, since then, I think they've flipped up one right on the road in Ames. But, I mean, they've just been stellar. And, I, you know, I think, I think they'd be favored against Kansas State. Uh, Bill Salt's going to find ways to win that game. So I would I would give the edge to the Jayhawks. Now, obviously, we've seen it. Kansas State can win against the Jayhawks like we saw back in February. But, just you know, this is a first-year head coach. This, these guys are all new to each other, relatively speaking. You know, I, I would give the edge to Kansas, but I wouldn't be shocked if K-State goes out and, and wins that one hypothetically. Last question for you here, Ryan. We'll stick with the hypotheticals here. Kind of a two-parter. I want you to give me – your number one seed who would be a nightmare matchup for Kansas State and maybe the number one seed in whatever region that would be a very favorable matchup for Kansas State to go up against if they were to make a deep run in March Madness? Well, Jack, you know, I don't follow the whole landscape too much of college basketball, but, I mean, you look at Alabama, and that's probably going to be a one seed here in March Madness, and you look at what, Oklahoma did to to the Crimson Tide here in the Big 12 SEC Challenge. I mean, why would you not want to play Alabama if you're Kansas State? If that's the one seed that you get stuck with, I think you're happy with that just because you know everything about Oklahoma. And if you see the Crimson Tide get just demolished the way they did against the Sooners, I think you'd be happy with that draw. I don't know if there's necessarily a team that, you know, I kind of like I said, this doesn't have to be a one seed. It would just be any team that has a, a strong uh, interior presence, you know, specifically on offense. If Kansas State gets a matchup like that, they'd be in trouble. It doesn't have to just be a one seed. But you know, winning the you know, winning in March Madness is tough. And I, I mentioned clicking at the right time. Kansas State stacked two wins now, and I think moving forward, they got to get some momentum going into March Madness. But you know, I'd go Alabama is the team that maybe you're okay with with being in that bracket, but. You know, it's as far as a team that you're fearing, it's it's any team with a, a big post player down low, not just the one seed. It could be any team. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for your time as always. And next time we talk, we'll probably be talking some postseason basketball. All right, Jack. I appreciate you having me on as always, man. 
There he goes. That's Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Always a great follow on Twitter if you are into K-State basketball, K-State recruiting, K-State football. You can go follow him on Twitter at GPC Ryan G. We'll take our first break of the show here in the first hour. When we come back, our college basketball talk continues. We'll be joined by Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast talking everything KU hoops. That's next here on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Back here on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, coming to you live from the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino as we're out here every Wednesday from either 7 to 10 or 8 to 10. Weren't here last week, but uh, fortunately back here and set up right next to all the TVs. Can't miss any of the action. Uh, college basketball games on tonight. You got NBA, you got NHL. Really can't miss anything when you were out here at the Barstool Sportsbook. And that's where we're going to be moving forward and, and talking about, you know, what's going to be going on for March Madness. They'll have plenty of watch parties. There was a watch party for the Super Bowl. There was a watch party for the Daytona 500. And we are going to continue our college basketball talk. Uh, we weren't able to grab Braden Turner on the line, but not to worry. D- Dylan can keep trying a little bit, and we can continue our talk with KU Hoops after on Monday night they get a big-time win over TCU, which, in my opinion, all but guaranteed a at least split of a Big 12 championship with Texas. But, of course, that may come down to a March 4th matchup in Austin that will tip off at 3 p.m. on ESPN. But going back to their game against TCU, they win 63-58. to They were led in scoring by Grady Dick with 19 on 18 shots. He was 3 of 10 from deep. Kevin McCuller gave them 15. Jalen Wilson didn't have the best of performances, but was great on the glass, giving them 13 boards, but just had 7 points. Dewan Harris had 6 points, 8 assists, and K.J. Adams, who struggled with foul trouble, had just 6 points and 6 boards. We are going to go back to the phone lines now as we are joined by Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast. Braden, thanks for taking the time to come on the show tonight. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Now, Braden, you go back to that game on Monday night against TCU. I never really want to say must win because if KU would have lost that game, they still had a chance, theoretically, to at least clinch a share of a Big 12 title. But I'll go one step further. Did Monday night's win against TCU, and then knowing the next three games, two of them coming at home against West Virginia and Texas Tech, and then looking at Texas, who has to go on the road to Baylor, has to go on the road to TCU, and host Kansas again, did it kind of almost signify that maybe Kansas wins this conference outright by not only one, but maybe two games? Yeah, they obviously have a great chance to win it outright now. I know, like you said, they got two home games in a row coming up, and we all know they don't really ever lose at Allen. So it could come down to maybe sharing it in Austin. But, yeah, like you said, Texas has a gauntlet schedule down the stretch. So I think, obviously, KU has a really good chance to win it outright in worst case could come down to in Austin um, the last game of the season. 
Where are you right now with, with this bench? I know you're not always going to get it from the same guy every single night, but I saw that a tweet from earlier tonight that Ernest Uday apparently has not missed a shot since November 28th. He's been very efficient inside. He's now getting more minutes, probably being more trusted by Bill Self. Bobby Pettiford's had his moments. Joseph Yesfu's had his moments, and even MJ Rice from time to time has had a couple of key possessions for Kansas uh, late in games. But are you confident in this bench? Are you okay with it that maybe it comes from a different guy every single night? Or maybe can you pinpoint one guy who will be the true sixth man for this team when March Madness rolls around? Yeah, I think Ernest has been hes been awesome lately. He's come in and given KU some really good minutes. Um, there's been some nights where KJ got in foul trouble and multiple guys got in foul trouble Monday night in Fort Worth. But I think Ernest has been really good lately from an energy standpoint. And given KU extra possessions, like he said, he hasn't missed a shot in Big 12 play. It's either 13 of 13 or 14 of 14. Um, so, yeah, he hasn't missed a shot in Big 12 play. I know Joe, like he said, some some of our guards have their nights. Some of them don't. Some of them don't play too well. So I know Joe comes in and he can become kind of instant offense guy, hit a couple shots, be a spark. Bobby has had his nights. MJ um, has shown – signs of improving and so I think the bench is a lot better than it was a month ago and I can't imagine how pleased Bill Self is right now and I know there'll be a time in March where maybe KJ or we play a team that like maybe KJ gets in foul trouble we play a team with a ton of length where they need Ernest to step up and so these big time minutes he's given them in big 12 play should be huge going forward. And that tweet from Ernest Uday who apparently hasn't missed a shot since November 28th came from Nick Schwartz on Twitter. Uh, Braden, who would you say is the X factor for this team? I know it's kind of bounced around from time to time. Some people would say Dewan Harris. Some people would say KJ Adams. Some people would say Kevin McCuller. I mean, you know what you're going to get pretty much every single night from guys like Grady Dick or Jalen Wilson, but who maybe takes this team deeper in March if they are to maybe have a bump in play? Yeah, I think if I had to say someone, it would be Kevin, just because like you said, Grady and Jalen, you know what you're, you're getting every night. Jalen he has had a couple nights where he struggled and they found a way to win, which I think will be huge for this team um, later in the year, just knowing, having the confidence they can win without Jalen going for 20-plus. So I would say Kevin because with DeWan, you're not expecting him to score a ton. Bill wants him to be more aggressive, but you know what you're getting from DeWan, good decision-maker, great defensively. But I think Kevin McCuller can take them to the next level on both ends. I think he could he could be a – third really good score for this team outside of Grady and Jalen and then on defense he just makes a ton happen he made a lot of big time plays in crunch time last year and he has the experience too he was at Tech on some really good teams and he came to KU to win a national title he could have stayed at Tech and been on a decent team but he came here to win a title and I think that experience will be huge for this KU team in March. We're talking with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast. Braden, in Joe Lunardi's most recent bracketology, his full 68-team breakdown here is Kansas is the number one seed in the West region, which would be played in Las Vegas. The two seed would be Arizona, which seems a little bit unfair to have that game then in Vegas, but of course nothing you can do about that. But I want to most importantly look at the second-round matchup, or potential second-round matchup, when it would be Kansas maybe even facing an Iowa or an Arkansas. Now, Arkansas was preseason top 10, but, of course, this is just a projection. Who says that Arkansas is even going to be a nine seed at that point? But going into this year, is it maybe a must that Kansas has to get that number one overall seed so that they can be in the Midwest region and maybe avoid a nightmare second-round matchup against a really tough eight or nine? Yeah, and that's kind of been um, the conversation lately is if they they could – 
get a two and be in the Midwest instead mm-hmm. of being a one out west, um, where kind of like in 2007 where KU was the one, UCLA was the two, and they had to play them in California. So Arizona would have the edge um, from a crowd standpoint probably. Obviously, KU fans will travel well no matter what. But I think I honestly think they have a really good chance to get the number one overall still, which that would put them in the Midwest for sure because I know Houston's up there right now, and they would probably get the Midwest. But – they might have to lose, I don't know, one more in the American tournament or something, but that's kind of what we were talking about on our podcast the other night is that if KU wins out in the regular season, I don't think they should be forced or they shouldn't have to win the Big 12 tournament for them to get the number one overall. I think their resume is unreal, 14 quad one wins. Um, they obviously play in the best conference in the nation by far. There's no, there's no league that's close to the Big 12, so I think their resume speaks for itself, and if they ended up winning out, um, Big 12 play and then maybe winning one or two one, one or two Big 12 tournament games, I think they have a really strong case to be the number one overall, which would put them in the Midwest. Now, Braden, I think the, the overall outlook of this Kansas team is that they're getting hot at the right time, but they still do have a couple of tough opponents on deck. I mean, you don't want to even toss aside a, the Texas Tech game at home or even playing West Virginia at home, but you look at that game against Texas on March 4th and you go to Kansas City, you'll likely have to face another team like a Baylor, a K-State, a Texas again if you want to win the Big 12 championship. But is it more so about what Kansas does over this final stretch in the regular season, or is it more, more so about what the rest of the number one seeds do for Kansas to eventually get that number one overall seed? Do they have to win out? Do they Can they afford a loss? Can they afford a loss or two? Do they need Houston to absolutely lose one more? Because if Houston wins out, I can't really see the committee penalizing them and yeah. bumping them down a seed. But again, at the same time, Kansas would maybe then break the record for quad one wins in a season. So what has to happen uh, more so for Kansas to get that number one overall seed and be in the Midwest region? Yeah, I'm with you on Houston because they're the number one overall now. So if they went out, I don't know how you could bring them down unless, I mean, K, the crazy thing with KU is they're going to play four, four or five more games against quad one teams. So, yeah, they're going to set the record. They're at 14. I think that ties the record. So they're going to set the record for most quad one wins. And like I said, the Big 12 is better than any league in the country, and I don't think any league's even close. Like there's no, there's obviously no argument. And if whoever wins that league outright, I feel like should be the number one overall. I know um, we just talked about Houston, and I know Alabama's up there as well, which they're going through some stuff right now. But it might come down to other teams losing, honestly, because I think KU's already made a strong enough case, um, and I don't see them losing more than one regular season game. So they should go into the Big 12 tournament as the one seed, um, and they'll play a tough team their first game, it'll be like a West Virginia or a Tech who would be another quad one opponent. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe, I think obviously Houston has to lose another one, I would say, to drop maybe to the n- number two overall or number three and KU hop them. If you compare this year's team to last year's team, are they going to need more luck than last year's team to maybe go back to the Final Four and then would it? hopefully repeat as national champions if you are a Kansas fan. Because you go back to last year, I mean, there were a number of times in the tournament that Kansas was on a a luck side of things. They got to face a team like Creighton, who was banged up instead of San Diego State, who was one of the top defending teams in the country. 
Then they get a team like Miami in the lead A's, the 10th seed, instead of maybe a two-seeded Auburn team. You get Villanova in the Final Four, and they also are missing a key player in that game. And then you get Carolina and not Duke in the National Championship. Not trying to take anything away from what that Kansas team did, because they went out won those games. They could only control what they could control, and that was playing a team in front of them. And they were damn good anyway, so I think they would have been favored in even games against two seeds or three seeds or four seeds fully healthy. But with this year's team, are they going to need even more luck than that, or could they go head-to-head against just about anybody in the country and come out on the winning side? I definitely think they can go head-to-head with any team in the country, but I've said all year I think it's pretty matchup dependent for this team. I think a team with a lot of length and a lot of size can give them fits, can give them fits in the tournament. I know you saw it against Tennessee. Um, I think we talked about Arizona maybe being our two-seed earlier. That's a team that really scares me. they got Ballo and uh, Tubelis and a really good guard play, too. So they have a lot of length. Arizona would kind of scare me. Um, but I think, obviously, they're as good as anyone right now. You can make a case for them being the best team in the tournament. I feel like we catch ourselves saying this every year, but college basketball really feels like it's wide open. I can't really pinpoint the best team. I don't know if you can or if the listeners can, if they think there's a clear-cut best team in the country, but I really don't see it. I know, obviously, Houston's really good defensively, really well-coached with Kelvin Sampson, and Bama's really good. Like I said, they're going through a little controversy right now. But, yeah, I think KU's as good as anyone, but I think a team with size might give them uh, some trouble in the tournament. But they, they also played a TCU team that everyone was worried about kind of beating them on the glass, and KU responded from getting blown out at home um, against TCU earlier, and they responded and ended up playing them really well. And KU's guards are really good on the glass, too. So I think the, some matchups will be tough for them, but I think Bill Self's such a good coach that he'll find ways for a team to compete against a team that gives them a tough um, matchup in the tournament. We're talking with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seeds podcast. And, and Braden, I think when you go back to that game against TCU, maybe earlier on in the year when they beat Iowa State at home in more of a, a rock fight or a grinded-out type of win, and they've also beaten teams in shootouts. And would that maybe make them one of the few teams in the country that can beat you in a variety of ways? I mean, I think a team like Alabama, who is a number, another top seed projected to be in the NCAA tournament, they really want to run teams out of the building. They want to score a lot of points. They don't want to get in those slow half-court games where you have to win 65-62. to 62. Kansas, it feels like, I mean, they kind of can go both ways, and, and that certainly helps them. Now, not to say they've won every single rock fight. They lost to Tennessee earlier in the year. They got thumped against Iowa State when they only scored 53. They've had mm-hmm. bad games when they haven't been able to get a high offensive production. But does this make Kansas maybe – or put them in a different group. The fact that they can win games in shootouts and also win games that are low scoring like they were against TCU on Monday night, or is that a lot of teams around the country right now that are top seeds that, hey, you can win games when it's close, you can win games when they're blowouts, they can win games when they're in the 80s or in the 60s. Is Kansas in maybe a league of their own, or are there more teams that do exactly what they do? Yeah, I think KU is. I know Baylor came um, to Allen Fieldhouse Saturday, and they were up 17 at one point. That's the best the best or one of the best offenses in the country for sure. And KU finds a way to win that game by 16 after they're down 17 with three minutes to go in the first half. And then, like you said, they've, they've won some tight ones. Um, I saw a stat where they're undefeated when they're leading with five minutes left in the games and games this year. So they've won a lot of tight ones. Um, and I think that'll be huge in March. Um, I know this team has a ton of experience. I talked about Kevin McCuller earlier but Jalen's been here Dewan played in all those big games KJ got some minutes in tournament games 
Um, so I think KU's experience and, yeah, the, finding ways to win no matter what in a tournament's huge because, like you said, they can run with teams, but they can also slow it down. Um, games where they can't make shots like Monday night against TCU, they couldn't make anything. Um, and they found a way to hold TCU to 30%. So they found, they found out they can win games, um, defensively too. And I think this team, I said it all year, they have the personnel to be really good defensively with KJ, Dewan, Kevin McCuller. I think those three are really good defensively. So I think they can win, like you said, they can win in shootouts or they can win in hard nosed defensive game where Bill self loves. We're talking with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seeds podcast. Braden, I think it's funny that, you know, sometimes in, in national championship years, you'll say, oh, that team got lucky or they had the ball bounce their way time and time and again. And I kind of feel like, you know, in the NCAA tournament, it's very few times just the number one team that runs its way through uh, the Absolutely. NCAA tournament and wins it in the end. You need luck, and that shouldn't take away anything. Like, you look at last year with Kansas winning. You could say they were definitely favorable or got things to fall their way in certain situations, but that's a part about the NCAA tournament. You have to get lucky to make it to the very end. We've seen very good Kansas teams losing the first weekend. We've seen a very good Kansas team lose to Oregon and Kansas City. We've seen a very good Kansas team lose to VCU, who was mm-hmm. a double-digit seed at that point in time. Like, I hate to bring up old wounds, but that's just how it happens here. But for yeah. the NCAA tournament, as a whole here how much of it is luck how much of it is really being a good team and getting hot at the right moment dude it's insane and that's why for years i've just been it's so frustrating that bill self gets so much crap for not winning more national Mm -hmm. titles and it's like roy never won one here and that's no knock on roy roy had so many good teams 97 02 03 um he had so many good teams never won it like there's it's just so hard, and like you said, it's about luck. It's about matchups. It's about getting hot. Like we've seen, we've seen a Butler go to the title game. Um, we've seen, yeah, VCU wasn't even supposed to be in the tournament. I remember Jay Billis on ESPN after the bracket select um, the bracket show, and he was so pissed that VCU even got into a play-in game. VCU wins the play-in game, obviously beats KU. Gets, so we've seen crazy teams um, make runs and. It's it's all about luck, and there's always going to be one one or two nights where you struggle, and you just got to find a way to win. Last year, like you said, Creighton, they lose Kalkbrenner, and then mm-hmm. they have six guys pretty much playing against KU, and they take KU pretty much to the wire. A minute left, KU is up one. Creighton has the ball. Um, they had a chance to win that game. Ochai gets a steal, dunks. So it's really about luck, and you got to find ways to win tight games, and you have upperclassmen for other teams that are not only playing for the season but playing for their careers like it's a one-and-done tournament and not even making excuses for bill but if if it was like series or something like that like best of three or something i think bill would have a ton of titles but if you have one bad night bad shooting night a team gets super hot hits 15 threes or so you're going to be in trouble and your season's going to be over so i think by far the hardest tournament to win in sports and i don't even know what other tournament you could argue this would be looking way, way ahead here, and obviously this would mean Kansas likely reaching the Final Four at this point. But I've been thinking about it over the last couple of weeks and looking at a team like Purdue, who is certainly shown to be vulnerable over these last two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. But they also have the National Player of the Year in Zach Eady, who is basically Yao Ming at seven foot four, seven foot five, whatever he is. But it made me think, Braden. I'm curious. I kind of want you to grab the clipboard here, put on your coaching hat, and see how you'd be able to defend a guy like that. And if you're Kansas, right? If you have a lineup where KJ Adams is six foot six foot six foot seven, and Jalen Wilson is six foot eight. How do you defend a guy that big if Kansas were to somehow meet Purdue in the NCAA tournament? 
It's, yeah, it's tough. It's kind of funny to think about and tough. Um, obviously, like you said, our biggest guy is six seven and KJ. So obviously, doubling. I mean, doubling in the post, kind of making like Edie's going to get his. I guess would yeah. be the um, mindset there. But I guess doubling in the post, hopefully making him pass out of doubles and maybe making their guards make tough shots. I think, like you said, Purdue's been vulnerable. I don't know if their guard plays good enough. And I think me and you have even talked about this, that March is just all about guard play. So you've yeah. got to have elite electric guards. I think Edie, he's obviously really good. I don't know if he can carry a team to the Final Four, a national title, but defensively, yeah, I, it's hard. <laughs> he's 7-4, so it's tough to – he's going to get in good spots in the post um, to catch it and go up. So I don't know. Um, I think obviously we know Bill, how good he is. Uh, defensively coming up with game plans. So I think he would come up with an, a really good game plan against Edie. Last couple questions for you here, Braden. All right, you can look at this bench right now, and it's just the guards here. So Joseph Yesvu, Bobby Pettiford, and MJ Rice. You can hand out your next Remy Martin award here as who is going to emerge late in the season and then would maybe propel this team into a deep March run. Who would it be of those three that think maybe they would have the best chance? I mean, it has to be Joe. I don't think Bobby or MJ can get to that level um, from a scoring standpoint. I think Joe can – I've talked about it earlier. Joe can catch fire, um, come in, knock down threes, get to the lane, um, get to the free throw line, make things happen, get guys uh, open looks. And people have to respect him because he can knock down jumpers. I love Bobby. I love MJ. But they don't really seem like threats from deep. Um, I know Bobby's electric, uh, can blow by guys and get to the rim too, but I think Joe would be the only option there. And I think Joe's a guy that can, I really think he could randomly come in in a tournament game and score 15 plus, um, and maybe bail KU out, hit two, three, four threes in a game, um, off the bench, maybe when one of our wings or one of our guards gets in foul trouble. So Joe's proved that before too. He did it at Drake. He, was averaging 25-plus probably at the end of the year there and would score in 25-30 in a couple tournament games. So Joe's shown the ability to do that at this level. Last question for you here, Braden. I think we're all pretty aware of the fact that Kansas is going to grab a one seed in whatever region. Maybe it's the Midwest, maybe it's the East or the West. But I'm going to read off right now from Joe Lunardi's two seeds in each region, and I want you to tell me who you would not want to see of those two seeds and who you would maybe want to draw as your two seed in kansas's region so the two seed right now in the south would be ucla the two seed in the midwest would be texas the two seed in the west would be arizona and the two seed in the east would be baylor of those options who would you absolutely not want to see and who would you think would be a very favorable matchup for kansas if they if they were to meet in the elite eight yeah i said earlier arizona terrifies me i think that would be a really tough matchup for us just because i think their guards are just as good as ours, if not better, and their bigs are obviously better too. Bellis, Ballo, I think their length would kill us. Um, they play super quick, and they're really well coached by Tommy Lloyd too. So I think I like Arizona a lot. I think they have a chance to win it. I think they definitely have a chance to win it all. I know that's probably not bold since they're a two seed, um, but I like their team a lot. I think that's a team that if they get hot in March, it could get scary. Um, and then who were the who was the other two seed besides Texas and Baylor? You have UCLA. UCLA. I think I think they have a great chance. I think they match up pretty well against UCLA. I know they're pretty good defensively. Um, they have some tournament experience. Made it to the Final Four a few years ago. Um, and they're good defensively. Mick Cronin, 
really good coach. So I think UCLA obviously is a good team, not taking anything away from them. But out of those two seats, um, that's who I'd want to play the most. Big 12-wise, uh, Baylor, Texas, I think obviously they have a shot to beat them. But just the thought of losing to a Big 12 team in the Elite Eight would suck and would kind of be miserable. So I I kind of would like to avoid Big 12 teams. Um, and I think, honestly, UCLA out of those four teams would be the best matchup. All right, Braden. Well, thanks so much for your time as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, brother. Have a good night. There he goes. That's Braden Turner from the Ain't No Seats podcast. Just a great follow for all things KU. He has a great podcast, as we just mentioned, the Ain't No Seats podcast. But really, if you're interested in anything KU sports, that being KU football, more importantly, KU basketball this time of the year, go follow Braden on Twitter at bturner23. Again, that's at bturner23. We'll give you some scores from around college basketball and the NBA uh, before we hit the break. So right now in Power 5 basketball, Clemson leads Syracuse by 19 at home with 132 to go in the game. Coming in tonight, Clemson was a four-and-a-half-point favorite. The total in the game was set at 145-and-a-half. Kentucky down in Gainesville is up by nine on the Florida Gators. 406 left to go in that one. Kentucky walked in as a two-and-a-half-point favorite. The over-under at 139-and-a-half. LSU up seven on Vanderbilt at home with 218 to go. Vanderbilt came in as a two-and-a-half-point favorite on the road. The over-under at 140-and-a-half. Maryland up 18 on Minnesota, which is about 20 seconds left to go in that game. They should, I don't want to actually jinx it here, the spread in the game was 15-and-a-half in favor of Maryland. They're up by three, or 18, excuse me, with five seconds to go. So should be able to hold on, barring any crazy shot from the Golden Gophers. The over-under in that game as well was at 130-and-a-half. Some games to be played later on tonight here in about six minutes. Ole Miss will be on the road at Auburn. The Tigers are a a 12.5-point favorite. The over-under at 136.5. Wake Forest on the road against NC State. The Wolfpack a a 5.5-point favorite. That will tip off at 8 p.m. The over-under at 156.5. North Carolina still fighting for a spot in the NCAA tournament and avoid being the first preseason number one to miss the NCAA tournament. They're on the road against Notre Dame tonight, who is 10 and 17. North Carolina, a six and a half point favorite. The over/under at 147 and a half. The second-ranked Crimson Tide on the road against South Carolina. That'll tip off as well at 8 p.m. Alabama is a 16 and a half point favorite. The over/under at 148 and a half. And Iowa will be on the road in Madison, Wisconsin, taking on the Badgers at 8 p.m. Wisconsin, a one and a half point favorite. And a final from tonight, an absolute shocker in college basketball. Boston College gets just their 13th win with a 15-point win over 6th-ranked Virginia, 63-48. to Boston College stuns Virginia, who now is probably going to be fighting to keep that two-seed for the NCAA tournament. As for some NBA games going on right now, they'll be tipping off here Excuse me, no NBA games on tonight. I was looking ahead to Thursday, but some good games for tomorrow night, which you can come, of course, out here to the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. The Nuggets will be on the road in Cleveland taking on the Cavs. The Celtics will be on the road in Indiana taking on the Pacers. The Grizzlies will be up in Philly against the 76ers. You also can catch the Thunder on the road against the Jazz. The Warriors will be in L.A. against the Lakers, and the Trailblazers will be in Sacramento against the Kings. That wraps up our number one here on the night shift on Sports Radio. 810 WHB. I am your host, Jack Johnson, out here live at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. More Chiefs and Royals talk next with Joel Penfield on Sports Radio 810 WHB.
It's the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, out here live at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. Great atmosphere right now. Plenty of TVs to watch all the college basketball you could possibly want. Kentucky and Florida on one of the TVs. We have Butler and DePaul on another TV. Uh, I mean, really, it just goes across the board here with how many games you could have going on at once. Uh, 45 plus HD TVs out here. Just a great, great spot to come here and watch college sports. You could watch baseball later on here in a couple of weeks. You know, spring training starts on Friday for the Kansas City Royals. You can have NBA games on. We read a lot of games that will be here tomorrow night. No NBA games on tonight, but NHL games. Of course, they had a Super Bowl watch party. They had the Daytona 500. There's a bar in the back, so you can grab yourself a drink, sit down anywhere you want, play some bets, because that's the place to do it here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. As as we do every single Wednesday, we are joined by Joel Penfield for the full hour from 8 to 9. That's Joel Penfield from the KC Sports Network. Joel, how are we doing tonight? Hey, I'm hanging in there. Still not over to the Super Bowl, are you? Neither am I. Okay, no, great. I see, I see we page. talked about this. It's now been, what, two weeks? Yeah. Two weeks. We talked about it last week and said it just hasn't really sunk in yet. It hadn't really sunk in, and we feel like... Maybe it never will once you kind of reach that level of, level of success and you expect it. It's not so much of a shock and awe type of factor as opposed to when the Chiefs won it the first time around. You just kind of felt like, man, is this the, the first one you get? Is the first of many? You're going to repeat? You're going to have a three-peat? You're going to have one in the next five years? You're not going to have one for ten years? That's always the the idea running through a sports fan's mind or somebody that covers sports you're just going man did i really just witness something that's only going to happen once in my lifetime exactly is it going to happen twice is it going to happen a lot of times and maybe that's where i'm at with the super bowl like when you win that second one in four years is it not just kind of coming becoming accustomed to knowing that every other year the chiefs are going to be there i mean it it certainly feels that way and it's certainly gratifying to get that second one i think the first one was way more meaningful just because it had been so long, this was a much more gratifying one because of the the doubt that kind of surrounded at least people outside of Kansas City thinking the Chiefs couldn't do it. And then you already have clowns like Jason McIntyre who <laughs> are already picking the Chargers to win the AFC West and the Bengals. We knew it was coming. Next year, yeah, the annual, this is the offseason champions, the, the Los Angeles Chargers. So uh, I think that makes it more fun still. Like That's why I'm still enjoying the Super Bowl because people are already next year going, okay, well, the Chiefs aren't going to win it again. Like that we were like we were told this off season, so it's just that recurring cycle. I mean, if they want to keep feeding the no one believes in us mentality that the Chiefs kind of carried into the playoffs, hey, by all means, do it. Give give Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey more motivation than they need. You know, I think it is funny, ironic, interesting too when you look at the Chiefs and they they kind of felt like you know we were doubted. And you have some people on on social media, whether that be Twitter, maybe you have people just talking on TV saying, "How in the hell?" can this team have the audacity to say they were doubted? And then sometimes you pull up the receipts and go, no, there were people that doubted them. They, they never said they were going to be terrible. Now, some people, um, Picked them that, the like playoffs. Art Scott said, yeah, they weren't going to make the playoffs. Some people said they had the second-best quarterback in the division. Some people said they were the worst team in the division. Some people didn't even have Mahomes in the top five of all quarterbacks in yeah, the league. Yeah, uh, Sam Acho, I believe it was, yeah. that did that. So <laughs> you have people that were picking against the Chiefs, but you sometimes need to, to reel it back in and go, hey, Shows need ratings. Sometimes when you say the outlandish things, it gets you more ratings because it gets more debates going on, and maybe that's why somebody has to be the Chiefs hater or the Patrick Mahomes hater. But 
when looking at the Chiefs team, did they have a right really to say, hey, we are underdogs? Because we saw New England do it as well. New England, at the very tail end of their dynasty, said, hey, everybody doubts us. People want the dynasty to die, but we're still just as good as we were in 2018 as we were back in 2004, 2005, or 2006. Like, I feel like in some capacity, the Chiefs had kind of a right to say, hey, for sure, we weren't necessarily underdogs, but we were doubted by more than just a few people. Well, I mean, it took until the very end of the week for them to be favorites at home in the AFC championship mm-hmm. game. They were literal underdogs in the Super Bowl. Yeah. And, you know, all week people were saying, man, like Patrick Mahomes is great, but that Eagles pass rush, that Eagles offensive line, the Eagles weapons, all of it, all week telling us how great the Eagles were and how the Chiefs, you know, great story. So good. they made it. But are they really going to be able to win the big game? Can Patrick Mahomes show up in the big game, which is just a nonsense argument in my opinion. And all you have all of these different aspects and then the chiefs go out and win when i don't know like 80 85 percent of sports media was picking the eagles Mm -hmm. like the fox crew went full sweep which was a first indicator that the chiefs were going to win that game just like that curse the game day Mm -hmm. the game day pick curse and then now people are like how dare how do they have the audacity to say they were doubted when they were doubted from the time they traded tyree kill until patrick mahomes held the lombardi trophy and then at the parade, they're still doing that. So I understand there's a certain amount of ratings that are involved in it. And I understand that some people, because it would be boring if everybody was just talking about how awesome the Chiefs are and there weren't haters. Like, there are certain token guys throughout the, the sports media world that are just going to be the Chiefs hater, the Patrick Mahomes dissenter, like all of that, even if it's bogus and they may not even believe the stuff they're saying. It's always going to happen, but it does it does fuel the fire. And Mahomes is that guy, kind of like Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, the guys that, you know, while incredibly talented, always found the little slights, always found the little criticism, the little negativity to fuel them. As, as you know, preposterous as it may have been sometimes, you just have to make stuff up to build that motivation. That's the type of thing that the Chiefs were able to do and able to build this year. And, I mean, if, if they're going to go into next year and people are already saying that the Bengals are going to get them and the mm-hmm. Bills are still there even though they're not – and the char and the Chargers are gonna they're coming the Jags are coming all these teams they're gonna go okay we're just gonna go ahead and sit back we're gonna go win our 14 games and host a six straight AFC championship. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network and you know if you're not used to that if you're not used to people doubting the Chiefs I mean it's been that way now for the last couple of years and it's always going to be that way there are gonna be people that will say. This Chiefs team isn't as good as the last one. You know, Patrick Mahomes is going to fall off once he loses this player or this player, once he gets a bad offensive line. Because here's the the thing, too. Tom Brady had that a large part of his career. There were Mm -hmm. people that said, hey, he's not as good. Hey, this quarterback is better. Hey, Peyton Manning's the better quarterback. He just doesn't get as many rings as he does. Hey, Drew Brees is the better passer instead of Tom Brady. And you know what? What can speak for it is you just win MVPs, you win a lot of rings. And right now Patrick Mahomes has that over the rest of the young quarterbacks in the NFL chasing him. And also, I don't think you should always take it as a slight if the Chiefs aren't picked, because here's the thing. The AFC is going to be loaded for the next decade. And the AFC is generally more loaded now than mm-hmm. it was in the early Brady yes. era. And, and, you know, the Chiefs' division, even though it kind of fell flat on its face this year, is still better than any AFC mm-hmm. East that the Patriots saw for 20 years. Oh, yeah, there was no quarterback. I mean, you go back over the last you know, 20 years in the AFC East, and I want you to name me more than five successful quarterbacks. You go back to Tom Brady's first year as a starter in New England. I'm I'm putting you on the spot, so I'm not going to hold you to it, but name me five successful quarterbacks in the AFC East. Chad Pennington actually was low-key kind of 
Kind I'll give you Chad there. Pennington. Okay, Mark Sanchez played an AFC Championship game, which is really <laughs> funny. Uh, Ronnie Brown in the Wildcat for the Dolphins. Okay. Um, I, technically, you could say Josh Allen at the very end. You could say I'll give I'll. So yeah, so I think we'll that was go the Josh Allen. Yes, I the, didn't really preface the the question. I was more so maybe going to go no Tom Brady, no Josh Allen, but that's kind of cheating the rules I know what here. You mean, I'm going to give you Josh Allen because yeah. you also gave me Ronnie Brown and you gave me Chad Pennington. Yeah, so dude. you you have every right to pick Josh Ryan Allen. Ryan Tannehill, I guess. <laughs> so see, see, that's what we're yeah, talking that's about. That's the here. point. Or Dante, oh, Dante Culpepper played for the Dante, Dolphins for a he minute. He did. He did. But you look at the AFC. But then West. again, think of the names we're listing here. Yes, like these are the not names. all-timers here. You're talking about guys that you know were, were serviceable at that time. Fine. But now you look at the AFC West, and you just said you know down year for them. But the quarterbacks in that division were Patrick Mahomes, going to be a Hall of Famer, Justin Herbert, depending on what he does winning-wise in the division, if he gets to the postseason and can succeed in the postseason, that may be a future Hall of Fame quarterback. You look at a guy like Russell Wilson, I know he gets criticized, but I think he was projecting to be a Hall of Famer before this last year in Denver, and he's still, I think, a good quarterback. He was adjusting to a system, really bad head coach, had a couple of injuries. Hey, I'm not going to be making excuses here for Russell Wilson, but he's still, by the NFL standards, a good NFL quarterback. And then even Derek Carr, who the New York Jets believe to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, if he does come to New York. I, I, I understand trying to sell a guy on it. I don't even think Derek Carr believes that. Maybe. I know his brother does. I'd imagine yeah, David no Carr is kidding. very high on, on Derek Carr, but that's the thing with the AFC West. The AFC West, at its worst, still had those names as quarterbacks. The guys you listed for the AFC East, and you did a damn good job of listing. I don't even know if I could have named you five AFC East quarterbacks. I, did, I sure, Dude, I had to dig down way deep in the archives for that. Like, to me, what Tom Brady did in the AFC East, though very commendable, you still it's still the NFL. It's right? still hard. It's but, not Division yeah. two, Division three teams. Like, you have to give him props, and he did also go beyond – the AFC East and play in the postseason, play Peyton Manning, play some of those guys that were gunning for him, and he still found ways to win. But right now, to me, if you had to make a division for Patrick Mahomes, even though he has struggled against this division in his career, it's like placing Patrick Mahomes in the AFC South every single year. And then yeah, you're getting about. you're getting Ryan Tannehill and the Titans. You are getting a guy like Davis Mills and Jeff Driscoll. Uh, you are getting a guy like Matt Ryan or... Sam Ellinger. Trevor Lawrence. Like, now, you, Trevor Lawrence is Trevor the exception Lawrence, to that rule. He's the exception. And even yeah. and Tom Brady, there was never really a number two guy no, to go up never. against him. Mark Sanchez was a couple of times. Josh Allen, very tail end of Brady's time in New England. I don't think it was the best version of Josh Allen no. just yet. But, you know, you, you put Trevor Lawrence and Patrick Mahomes head-to-head. I'm sure he's going to win at least one every single year, but likely sweeping Trevor Lawrence. And those are the other quarterbacks in his division. Like, to me, that's the equivalent right now with the AFC. And it's also there's going to come a time, Joel, where – the Chiefs don't win their division. There's going to come a time when the Chiefs aren't the number one seed. They're going to have to play on a road playoff game. But right now, kind of going back to the point of the numbness of the Super Bowl, it's because you got so accustomed to winning, you're just not shocked by it anymore. Like the Chiefs could go back next year, win 14 games, get the number one seed, and I'm not really losing my mind over it because no, though all. it's an impressive impressive year, you're still just going, wow. I'm just I'm used to this now. This is what the expectation is. The bare minimum is hosting AFC Championship games at home. And if you really want to be considered a dynasty like the Chiefs are, are talking about, and I think they have a right to do so. I know a lot of people are saying the Chiefs are putting the cart before the horse. I don't mm-hmm. think so. But if you want to be considered that, you have to keep winning, and you have to keep hosting AFC Championship games and getting to Super Bowls and winning Super Bowls, and they have an opportunity to win their third in five years, third in six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is a, this is a big year. There's going to be high expectations, even if the Chiefs are not – picked unanimously across the board like the Bills were uh, this past year, that expectation is certainly there, and it's going to make things really interesting this year. 
Going back to Derek Carr here, because, you know, we won't spend the, fur- the full 30 minutes here just talking Chiefs, 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 because I feel like the NFL is still moving about. We're going to be coming up here on the draft here in Kansas City, and a lot of teams have decisions to make in terms of their quarterback play. Now, the New York Jets apparently believe Derek Carr would be a first ballot Hall of Famer if he comes to New York. I've got my doubts about that. I don't think Derek Carr is a bad quarterback. I think Derek no, Carr is a no. very serviceable quarterback. But what do you think makes the Jets believe, rather than just a selling point? Right? One I second. feel it's more so. I was sorry, oh, sorry to cut you off. I just want to say that I will back up Deion Sanders saying that they let anyone into the Hall of Fame now, even though I hate that take if they do let Derek Carr into the Hall of Fame. I well, apologize the, for cutting you off. No, I you're totally to fine. It's. It's it's interesting, Dylan. I, I never want you to feel like you can't jump on in. It's just we can't see you. So anytime, yeah, I was just like, hopefully we didn't miss a break or a commercial <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, that was what I was thinking <laughs> usually, at first. No, so usually I have a point, and then it's way past the time it should be said when I have it, and I just needed that <laughs> one to get out there no matter what. That If Derek Carr makes it to the Hall of Fame, Deion Sanders is right. They are letting but anyone to, in. Yeah, to, to your point about what, what the Jets see, like, there is a certain amount of I know in Kansas City we like to make fun of Derek Carr for obvious reasons. He looks like a punk rock guy with, like, the guy liner, and he plays he for the Raiders. And, and anyone that plays for the Raiders is a David punching guy in the city. Yeah. And, you know, he likes to throw the 500 jackpot ball. You know, mm-hmm. we were playing in the backyard when we were kids. He'll do that every once in a while. It folds, like, wet cardboard against the blitz. But through all of that, he still has one of the highest, um, like, number of fourth-quarter comebacks and game-winning drives in the NFL since he came into the league. And managed to th- and dude thrives like the, the Raiders are a dumpster fire of an organization most of the time when you just look at the chaos that happens off the field and mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into to all the legal stuff but you know yep. what I'm t- you yep. know what I'm referring to especially last season and cough, so cough, John Gruden. drug that team to the playoffs somehow mm-hmm. like there is that in there obviously the fit with Josh McDaniels wasn't there but when you think about the young complement of weapons that he has yep. he's going to have Nathan- I know Nathaniel Hackett is a meme at this point but decent enough offensive mind like he and Aaron Rodgers got along like you think maybe that system could work for him um, I think it's definitely a, a more complimentary system than whatever Josh McDaniels was trying to do this year sub Garrett Wilson he'll have Corey Day was Brees Hall like there's a lot to like about the Jets and I think Derek Carr could probably like get them to compete in the AFC East with the Bills mm-hmm. so that I think it's interesting but I don't know if the fit makes sense from this this perspective like I, I just talked about I just complimented Derek Carver on the flip side of it if you go on Twitter I like I are you blocked by him like 80% of the NFL fans are yes. that New York media is tough man and like he handles himself super well I respect the way he conducts himself handles himself in a lot of situations but there is a little bit of sensitivity there that I don't know if he could handle that media market. It's a tough market. Yeah. So that that I'm not sure about. Uh, I personally, I think the fit in Carolina would be a lot better for Derek Carr. Uh, you saw DJ Moore. You'd have Chuba Hubbard, Deontay Foreman. Frank Reich's a heck of a coach. Uh, when you think about what he had to deal with with the quarterback carousel there in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. I know people soured on him at the end, but that was a, a no-win scenario with the constant rotation of quarterbacks that – uh, Jim Irsay was trying to throw in there just to try and, you know, quick fix everything. He can kind of build things his own way there. And, and an owner that wants to win is willing to throw money at it. 
I think that could actually work pretty well. You know, I will always say that here in Kansas City, I, I did want to root for Derek Carr, but it's hard to root for Derek Carr when he's the quarterback of a division rival of the team. That totally you're in the fair. City for. Absolutely. So, like, he is a very likable guy. Uh, I think at times he had a little bit of the cheesiness, like a Russell Wilson, like, you know, crying at the podium after a loss and saying. But the thing is, like, that actually felt more. I know. It did feel more authentic. It, it is more authentic. Russ, nothing Russell Wilson does is authentic. I think Derek Carr is a much more authentic person, but continue. Because Derek Carr, too, played his ball at Fresno State and got drafted by the Raiders. He's playing in Oakland. He feels like it's kind of a hometown feel. He wanted so badly for the Raiders to be relevant, to be good again. And there were moments the Raiders were. They made the postseason. They had a a tremendous stretch last season where they beat out the Chargers for the final spot. It was the the Brandon Staley debacle game where it allowed the Raiders to kick the game-winning field goal where the Chargers could have tied and gone into the postseason. But the Raiders still stormed back with an interim head coach in Rich Passaccia, and Derek Carr was the quarterback. He was the front runner. He was the leader of that team. And I think it's always screamed, like underdog mentality, the guy that's been doubted, but he's a guy you root for. And now it is going to be so interesting to see him in a place other than Vegas, other than Oakland, because that's all we've known with Derek Carr. And like you said earlier, with the Raiders kind of being that organization that people mock, that people make fun of, call a dumpster fire, it'll change now. Because I feel like any quarterback that goes there, it that stigma sticks with you. It just you. sticks, you just, yeah. You're going to be a quarterback that's made fun of, just like how it was for years with the Jets. It was like whoever the quarterback was of the New York Jets. Hell, I'm not going to be biased here. It was a long time. It was what happened in Kansas City for years. Whoever oh, the quarterback yeah. of the Kansas City Chiefs was, it was not a very good quarterback, and that, that stigma stuck with you. So now it is curious for Derek Carr at this stage in his career if he can sort of rewrite who he is, what he can be about. I think it depends on where he goes. I do like to fit in Carolina. I really like to fit in New Orleans if he were to go there. The problem is New Orleans, as it sits right now, is $60 million so they're in over cap the cap. They are in cap hell. And the going rate with just quarterback inflation, you're going to be paying Derek Carr 30 to $35 million mm-hmm. a year. You're going to have to make significant sacrifices. And are you willing to sacrifice, like, a Michael Thomas? Yeah. Possibly, you know, there's the suspension looming with Alvin Kamara, but you got a decision to make there. And other weapons and defensive players with a defensive head coach to make it work with a quarterback that, like, I think he's fine. Like, he's a good yeah. quarterback, but I don't know if he can elevate too many. You know, he still has really solid weapons last year making it work. So I, I think that just from the cap situation, I don't think it makes sense. I understand the fit totally, but the cap situation makes it awful. We're talking with Joel Penfield of the KC Sports Network as we do every single Wednesday from 8 to 9 out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. And stop on by if you want to. We have some free KC Golf Show tickets that will take place this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Overland Park Convention Center, Friday 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Sunday 10 a.m to 4 p.m. Joel, you much of a golfer? Oh, yeah. I actually got out and played 36 holes this past weekend. Here are two tickets for you right here. We just had an exchange right over the air, but if you want a free ticket to the KC Golf Show at the Overland Park Convention Center, just come on by. They're sitting on the table. If we're on air, just grab a ticket. Really, you don't need to answer any trivia question. You don't need to put your name in a raffle. These are tickets to give away because we want people out there. I will be out there on Saturday from 10 to 12 at the 810 table like we got set up out here. So come on by, say hi. And, I mean, who doesn't like golf? You, Even if you you're not very much? good. I play 
I think that's what I can leave it at. I can't say I play it successfully or I am somebody that's fun to play with. I'll have a couple beers. I'll take the that's, fireball shooter on the course. That is the only way to play golf. Like, that's that's how you have to play golf if you're bad. If yes. you're really good and you're holding people up, maybe just stick to the golf aspect of it. But, yeah, you have a good time to go out in good weather. It's coming up here. It's in, about to be here March next week. We get into April and May. Hell, go look at some equipment at the KC Golf Show. Get yourself some some new clubs. Get yourself some gloves. Look at some cool stuff. Putt a little bit. See what you can find out there because I was there last year. It's a very fun event to be at. So, again, stop by this table. Tickets are here for you. There's no raffle. There's no call-in. There's no trivia question you need to answer. We want people out here because Sports Radio 810 will be out here. What's the best you've ever shot, Joel? Uh, I think it was an 86 That's last a hell of a lot better than me. Yeah. Now, I'm not back in that form yet just because it's, you know, it's been a little bit. I probably shot somewhere in the, you know, low 90s on Saturday, and then whatever I did on Sunday was like an insult to the sport. But I'm not used to playing back-to-back days, and I am an old 26-year-old, and my back, knees, and feet were hurting because we walked 18, too. So Oof. that was a... Uh, that was an adventure, but it was fun. Like I go out and play with my dad pretty consistently, so that kind of father-son time, some of his buddies, and we we all had a good time. You never think you'd like golf when you were fourteen or fifteen, but once your playing days are over of baseball, exactly. basketball, football, or soccer, or swimming, and you go, you know, my body can't really go through that anymore. I might as well go play some golf and see if I'm any good at it. And it takes a little bit of a learning curve. If you're not very good, go get lessons. I can't really say I've taken lessons because. I don't know. I just haven't found the time to do it. But maybe now, maybe this year is the year that I decide to go be a great golfer because I can maybe just stick to top golf if not. Exactly. I, I, I was never good. I made a couple just tweaks on my swing and mm-hmm. started to get okay. And once you hit, like, not just the – it's always that one good shot around that keeps oh, yeah. coming back. But when you do it, you know, consistently for a whole round, you get addicted fast. And that's where I had at this point. I, got a, I bought myself a two-iron over the weekend. So that was uh, – and that thing is actually really fun to hit. When you can hit it right, I mean, that's like – 220, 230 yards, like right there in the middle fairway. Well, maybe you have to teach me how to hit a two iron because I think I'm still struggling to hit it with just one club. Uh, <laughs> i got to find something I can thrive at in the golfing world because I need to learn how to be a better golfer. But back to the NFL, of course. We'll talk about the golf show maybe later on in the show. But in regards to the Las Vegas Raiders, because we're not done with them. Derek Carr is moving on. But I did think this was very interesting that Darren Waller came out publicly and said he was told that it was a 100% guarantee Tom Brady was going to be coming to Vegas next year if he didn't retire. But as we all know, Tom Brady has officially retired. Whether he stays retired, that remains to be seen. But I'm sitting here, Joel, and I'm going, man, Kansas City and the Chargers and the Broncos missed out on an excellent opportunity to really make the Raiders the punching bag of the division. Because Tom Brady, as we saw in Tampa last year, age had caught up to him and he is the greatest of all time he's got the rings you know you can maybe have the debate that Patrick Mahomes could get there but in terms of just a winning quarterback Brady is that now that's not to say he would be the worst quarterback in the NFL but if the Raiders were We are back here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. Had a little bit of a technical malfunction there, uh, but that's always going to happen from time to time when you're dealing with technology and equipment. So, Dylan, I'll actually swing it to you real quickly. At what point did we drop so we don't repeat ourselves here on the air? Uh, I'd say like about a minute, two minutes ago. Probably go back Okay, to, so not too bad. So we were likely like talking at, right about, after you got did you hear the part the golf show stuff? Which okay, if we could perfect. Just continue so we can just revisit. Show, yeah, that was that was great. Yes, radio. and I'll make sure. 
I don't bump our blue wire here, the Ethernet cord, and I'll make sure our level's here. I'll be able to look at it here and make sure we don't drop again. But, uh, Dylan, since you didn't catch that point, we were talking about Tom Brady and the maybe the possibility before his retirement of going to the Las Vegas Raiders. And Joel and I were just tossing around the idea of that. Uh, that really wouldn't have been the best move for the Raiders moving forward in the future, and I really don't think it would have been the best move in keeping a guy like Devontae Adams. So maybe we'll go to that point. Uh, if the Raiders aren't maybe able to haul in a primed quarterback to replace a Derek Carr, which Derek Carr was able to recruit Devontae Adams. They were college teammates. That was the reason I think Devontae Adams was able to come to Vegas. But now they're in the position of, okay, where do you go with the quarterback? Are they going to go hard for Aaron Rodgers because they need to keep that Hall of Fame type of presence? Not saying Derek Carr was one, but at least he was college teammates with Devontae Adams. I mean, is that where the Raiders are now? That they're going to need to go all in, put their chips in to get a top 10 quarterback to keep their players happy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird situation, though, because when you look at the options that are out there for the Raiders to get, you mentioned Aaron Rodgers, but what's Aaron Rodgers at this point? He's going to be 39 years old, almost 40, and he really did not have a great year. He looked kind of aloof and apathetic out there a lot of times, and if he wasn't willing to put in the work with, you know, the weapons that he had that are brand new in, in Green in Green Bay. He's going to be interested, more interested in going on darkness retreats and trips down to South America for certain substances uh, to go and, you know, go on a vision quest. And I know he has a relationship with Devontae Adams, but you can't sort of Devontae Adams every single time. So I don't know what that's worth to you. And he, you're competing at that point to be third best quarterback in the division with Russell Wilson. And then your other option is Jimmy Garoppolo, which, congrats, yeah. he would be getting the fourth-best quarterback in the division right out the gate. And a downgrade from Derek and Carr. And a downgrade from Derek Carr. Pretty much any quarterback that the Raiders could get at this point, unless they make some crazy trade for, like, Lamar Jackson or something, mm-hmm. you're getting the fourth-best quarterback in the division. And teams with the fourth-best quarterback in a division, they don't win those. So it, they really kind of shot themselves in the foot with this by – having your franchise guy, giving him a ridiculous extension, and then by week 15 going, nope, we're done with this. It's Again, it's a tire fire, and they're doing it to themselves. There is no, They have no one to blame but themselves with it. Hell, I'll probably go out and say that it doesn't really matter who the Raiders go out and get. No, it's the third-best it, it quarterback. Really they're doesn't. not going to be better. Even even when you look at a guy like Lamar Jackson, who I love Lamar Jackson, I he's don't know at this Herbert. point he's not better than Herbert, and he's not better than Patrick Mahomes. So it will be kind of a race for third place if you are the Las Vegas Raiders. We will take our first break here of the second hour. When we come back, let's talk Eric Bieniemy to Washington and what it means for them, what it means for the Chiefs, and if Matt Nagy really is just going to be the next OC in Kansas City or if they'll look externally. We'll get into all that next here on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB.
It is the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I am your host, Jack Johnson, out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. Dylan Michaels back in the studio running everything, playing some great bumper music. And as we do every single Wednesday from 8 to 9, we're joined by Joel Penfield of the KC Sports Network. A reminder that you can come on by and grab some free tickets here to the Kansas City Golf Show that is on February 24th to the 26th. That is this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Friday it is from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday is 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And Sunday it is 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. These are just free tickets sitting here. You don't need to say anything to us. You can stop on by, give us a wave, say hi, whatever you want to do. Uh, these are your tickets. You can take them and go show up to the KC Golf Show. We want people there. We will be there. I will be there on Saturday from 10 to 12. Always such a fun event, a really cool event at the Overland Park Convention Center. Let's continue some of our Chiefs talk here. And one of the biggest news of the last couple of weeks was Kansas City losing their offensive coordinator and Eric Bieniemy to the Washington Commanders. Now, a couple different things I want to dissect with this, Joel, and I think we all understand that Eric Bieniemy, alongside Andy Reid, was one of the more deadly duos in coaching. Absolutely. Offensively, you have Andy Reid, who is known to be one of the best play callers in NFL history, and Eric Bieniemy being the guy that knew how to work with players, knew how to elevate those players, but never could get that head coaching role. And I think one of the criticisms that I saw time and time again was, well, he's under the shadow of Andy Reid. Andy Reid's the one calling the plays, but Andy Reid would step up to the podium and go, hey, I'm not the one calling the plays. Eric Bieniemy is. But then, if I'm not mistaken, I remember Travis Kelsey on his New Heights podcast said Andy Reid calls the plays or Andy yeah. Reid calls e- e- more e- plays than a lot than of people. the installs. Yes, well. a lot of the installs. So uh, my first question to you is, where do you think, or what do you think, Eric Bieniemy was involved in with this offense? Was he a guy that was maybe more hands-off? Was he more so behind the scenes and Andy Reid called all the ridiculous play designs that ended up working? I mean, how much hands-on do you think Eric Bieniemy was in his time in Kansas City? I mean, we'll never truly know mm-hmm. until, uh, you know, until Andy leaves and then you see the impact of the offense. Yep. But at every turn, Andy always gave Eric Bieniemy credit for mm-hmm. The install, the script, you know, a lot and a lot of the stuff behind the scenes with the offense, even if Andy was the guy that ultimately was calling the plays as they were structured. But it, it's just a weird situation because Matt Nagy, when he was the offensive coordinator, didn't call plays in Kansas City. It didn't stop people from giving him a head coaching job in Chicago. Doug Peterson was the offensive coordinator under Andy Reid. Andy called the plays, and it did not stop Doug Peterson from getting a head coaching job with the Eagles. But for some reason, the lo- the logic has to be that Eric Bieniemy has to call his own plays and run his own offense yep. to to get a head coaching job. And so just the goalposts are moving even more. And I hate taking it down this road, but it just feels there's just this this inherent for some reason just negative bias against black coaches trying to get hired as head coaches in the NFL. And a lot of, and I know people have made a lot about the Rooney, you know. Well, Bienemy's been interviewed 15 times or yep. whatever, but how many of those do we really know that he was just interviewed to suffice the Rooney rule and mm-hmm. move on? That he was never actually considered for the position as a finalist. He was just there to fill a role. And it sucks that he has to go to do this and go to Washington to to try and blaze his own path and other coaches yep. that have been offense coordinators under offensive-minded head coaches and not call plays, and it didn't matter. Another example, Nick Sirianni did not call plays under Frank Reich, mm-hmm. and he got a head coaching job very, very quickly. Yeah. Originally, Shane Steichen was not calling plays before Sirianni gave him the role. He got a head coaching job quickly. 
yeah. uh, right after the Super Bowl. So it's just another hoop that Eric Bieniemy unfortunately has to jump through. I wish him nothing but the best, and I hope that he goes out there and no matter who his quarterback is, he has a good enough offense that he can go and then sit down at the desk next year with his two Super Bowl rings and go, what else do I need to do to be a head coach in this league? Well, you know, I think it's been a talking point the last four to five years when Eric Bieniemy didn't get the head coaching job. You're starting to wonder, you know, what is it? Is it a race thing? Is it that they believe Andy Reid's calling the number of the plays? As you just said, Joel, you know, in Kansas City, Andy Reid was calling plays when Doug Peterson was here. He was calling plays when Matt Nagy was here. Now Alex Smith was the quarterback. So what was the difference with Eric Bieniemy? I know another common uh or talking point that was brought up was that well is Eric Bieniemy just a poor interviewer? Does he go into those those meetings? Nick, he, there's no way Nick Sirianni killed that initial interview. There's it's, no way da- Dan Campbell, as awesome as he is, killed that <laughs> interview, right? Like you look, Jonathan Gannon's as cringy yep. as it gets. Nathaniel Hackett, I know he was Aaron Rodgers' bait, but you can't tell me that Eric yep. Bieniemy is a worse interviewer than any mm-hmm. of those guys. And I know some of them turn out to be really good NFL head coaches. Yep. But the interview doesn't tell you all of it. It's the results on the field. And what we have seen over the course of five years, Apologies for our technical difficulties out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino, but we are back here. We're back up and running. I am your host, Jack Johnson. Joel Penfield to my right from the KC Sports Network. Uh, Dylan Michaels back in the studio. I'm not exactly sure where we dropped off, but you all know that we were talking about the situation with Eric Bieniemy. so we'll just kind of pick up where we did, I think, drop off with EB. But I think going back to you know that first Super Bowl when they won, I at least was under the impression I'm going – that is it. Eric Bieniemy is leaving. It's just the way it goes. A team wins the Super Bowl. Usually an OC or a DC is plucked from that team based on how they got there, right? I think in San Francisco, I'm trying to remember back at that point in time who the defensive coordinator it was. Robert was. Sala. Okay, so it was, yeah, Robert Sala. Yeah, so he went to the New York Jets, and, and you just think, okay, San Francisco was there because of who? It was because of their defense. Sala gets a head, a head coaching job. But with Eric Bieniemy, he didn't get that job. Then you go to 2020. Chiefs go 14-2 and in the regular season. They go to the Super Bowl again. They lose, but due to, you know, a barrage of injuries with that team, and I'm starting to go, all right, well, if he didn't get it last year, now has to be the year he gets it, and then he didn't. Since that point, I haven't really gone into the offseason with the anticipation that he would get a head coaching job, and I'm not sure that the move to Washington will get him a head coaching job. It's certainly a step sideways and a little bit downwards into the team he's going to. It is a promotion to a role because he is the assistant head coach next to Ron Rivera, but at the end of the day, I think the unfortunate reality for Eric Bieniemy is he's not this 35, 36-year-old spring chicken. He is an older head coach. He's still trying to get his first head coaching role. And now in the NFL, I think it may be more of an approach of teams going after coaches that have already been head coaches. The, the likelihood of hiring an OC that was you know, maybe 60 or 61 may not be the move for a team that's trying to rebuild words. A team like Arizona, they went after Jonathan Gannon that we did just kind of mention he's a little bit cheesy who knows how that and works got beat out there. like a drum in the super bowl he got beat like a drum by eric Bieniemy and andy reed but you know i think this off season i was more so shocked than anything that he decided to leave because i didn't know where eric Bieniemy really stood on the idea of being a head coach because remember every time he was asked about it he just said that's not my focus right now my focus on the team like he never outwardly said hey i really want to be a head coach so after all those years i'm going you know why would he leave if he's got the best OC job in the NFL, he's working with the best players, the number one offense. He can't really prove that much more. He can make as much money as he wanted as an OC, but it's clear that Eric Bieniemy wants to be a head coach. So 
my question to you about this Washington offense, they're going to have Sam Howell, who had what? one or two starts last year. It's an offense that doesn't have a ton of talent, an okay defense, but you have Brian Robinson, you have Terry McLaurin. There are Jahan pieces. Dotson Jahan Dotson. The the they're going to have a, a high first-round draft pick, assuming I'm not missing any trade or anything like that. I believe Washington will be selecting top 15. We might guess maybe top 20 in the first round this year. So there could be some pieces to work with here. But maybe what's the the leash for Eric Bieniemy here? Is it a situation where they go, he got a five-year contract, if I'm not mistaken. So is Washington going into saying, hey, we may struggle for a year or two because Sam Howell's our quarterback, or is it going to be, this offense isn't turned around in two years, we thought it was going to work because you came from Kansas City, your ass is out. Like, how long do you think the leash is for Eric Bieniemy now in a different role where it's not so much taking over this gauntlet, this fire-powered offense that breathes yeah. fire, can light up anybody in the NFL, to now more of a we got to work this offense up because it's not there yet. It's tough to tell at this point. I mean, Ron Rivera's on a hot seat coming into this mm-hmm. year with the way things have gone the last couple of years. I mean, hell, he had no idea that they were even – could possibly be eliminated from the playoffs. When was that, week 15 or 16? Yep. That was awkward. It kind of tells you where they're at. But <laughs> he's a defensive-minded head coach that brought in a legitimately good offensive coordinator, uh, which is not something you often see. And it feels like he's kind of giving – EB autonomy mm-hmm. to just run the offense. So that's that's good for, for Eric that he doesn't have a defensive head coach that wants him to play joyless murder ball and just yeah. let the defense work. So there's that. I, I would not be shocked if, you know, maybe there's some growing pains this year as he is really calling plays consistently for the first time in the league mm-hmm. and he's dealing with a less than ideal quarterback situation. I think Sam Howell could be good. Maybe. Maybe, you know, he, yeah. I think he showed some promise in that start against Dallas in week 17 mm-hmm. or week 18. But I, I don't know. I don't think it'll be a short leash. Now that's also dependent on the leash that Ron Rivera's on because he's on that staff. And if they've kind of fallen their face this year, Ron Rivera's gone. And then you got to wonder what they're going to do. Now it could be a scenario where they bring him in because Ron maybe knows, hey, if things don't go well this year, at least you're here. You he's call the offense, head coach. Yeah, you and know. There's an team. opportunity for him to elevate. So I, I, I could see a scenario something like that. It, I wouldn't want Eric Bieniemy to get it that way. Yeah, but if that's what it takes for him to be a head coach, that's what it takes. And I think at this point, most of us are just curious. You know, if all these years, you know, imagine if Eric Bieniemy in year one as a head coach, if Ron Rivera's on his way out after 2023-24, Eric Bieniemy takes over in the 2024 season that leads in the 2025. Let's say Washington goes 10 and seven, makes the playoffs, and you're going, man, all those teams for so many years hired these guys that were out in a year or two. I mean, look at Houston. I mean, they hired uh, David. Was it Cole and David Coley? David Coley and David Coley and Lovey Smith. Sham, like. Just one-year guys. Yeah, they just one-year deals, and now they have Demico Ryan's. Yeah. yeah, it's like, well, in that span where you hired a David Coley, you hired a Lovey Smith, because clearly they went the route of hiring yep. a, a person of color, a coach of color in that situation. Why'd you pass over an Eric Bieniemy? That's, I think, what more so I'm going to be so intrigued with is if Eric Bieniemy ever gets that job. Like, I'm already going to be intrigued to see what Washington's offense looks like, and if Washington has. I even think a top 20 offense, you'll know Eric Bieniemy was the real deal. 100%. He was the guy in Kansas City. What I think is going to be the thing to watch is how he calls it, because here's the thing in Kansas City. As good as this team is, at times it could have been easy to call plays for a tight end like Travis Kelsey right. or to call plays for a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes. Now it's about that adjustment, right? It's about mm-hmm. that adjustment of calling plays for a limited young quarterback with using top weapons like a Jahan Dotson and Terry McLaurin. So still good weapons there, and you have a good running back in Brian Robinson. So there are pieces to work with, but it's a matter of how you can adjust. And that goes with any OC that comes over from a different organization. Like if you are the OC 
and let's say, or let's just use the Eagles, for example. Let's say you are Jonathan Gannon. You are the D.C. there. It's about running your team differently because Arizona is not Philly. It's a completely different team, completely different structure, and that's how coaches have to adjust. And adjust, and not many coaches can make that adjustment. So that will certainly be the thing to watch for with Eric Bieniemy in Washington. Now in regards to the Kansas City Chiefs and the O.C. role being an opening, I think everybody would make their guess that it's going to be Matt Nagy. He's been the O.C. before. Right. He was the O.C. when Alex Smith had a career-high 4,000-plus passing yard season in his final year in Kansas City. I mean, do you think is there any snowball's chance in hell that it's not Matt Nagy as the O.C. for the Kansas City Chiefs in 2023? No, it seems like that's going to be a foregone conclusion that Matt Nagy is going to be your offense coordinator next year. Now, the weird part of this is because it's a coordinator hire, you still have to adhere to the Rooney rule. So uh-huh. you're having to bring it, you have to bring in a minority candidate and one other and conduct three interviews. So it's a weird, you fall into that weird situation that it's a little hypocritical considering what we've seen Eric Bieniemy go through yes. trying to get a head coaching job. So if you want, really want to hire Matt Nagy, I understand, but then it, it's just a weird, awkward situation that you're walking into with that. I don't know who that candidate could be. You know they're gonna have to they have to do it to adhere to the NFL rule. But I I would be shocked, absolutely floored if Matt Nagy is not the the head, the offensive coordinator in Kansas City next year. Well, and I think that Matt Nagy is, according to I believe it was Albert Breer, a very strong candidate to be the replacement for Andy Reid whenever he decides to call. I could it quits. see that. And you know I know everybody has their impressions of Matt Nagy and his time in Chicago, but I think we can have a good debate about this. I don't think Matt Nagy was a bad head coach. He took Mitch Trubisky to the playoffs twice. 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 Mitch Trubisky, folks. And it's because when you're in that big market, Dylan, do you have a thought on, on Matt Nagy? Oh, five the see now we're getting now we're getting thrown up a thing and towards jumping ahead of the time, but no worries on that. But with Matt and Aggie here, I think that's because you're in a big market like a Chicago, a New York, uh, you can probably go as far as to say a, a Dallas, right? Yeah. Dallas Cowboys. You're a quarterback or a coach that slightly underachieves the expectations. They think you're a terrible coach. Like people in Chicago think Matt Nagy is a terrible coach because there wasn't much success in the postseason. But if it wasn't for a Cody Parkey double doink, the Bears likely have one season. That year they were 12 and four. I believe yeah. the Bears were the number one of the number two seed in the NFC that they year. Were, I think with they were, Mitch I think they Trubisky, were like a, yeah, like 11 and five or something like that with again. Mitch Trubisky. And that is something to factor in. And also the year he was the OC in Kansas City, even if it was Andy Reid calling a lot of the plays. Alex Smith had his best year, yeah. So that's why I think it's a no-brainer. But to your point about being a little bit awkward, like I think Matt Nagy is already the guy, and you're still going to have to interview candidates. And interview candidates that probably going in know this is not really going to be my job. But I think right now Greg Lewis's role in Kansas City is – is a special team side of things? Something like that. But Wide it sounds, receivers. It sounds like he's going to maybe leave with the enemy. He may go with EB. So If that was maybe it, the candidate you could try to have an in-house hire for if you didn't want to go externally. Because I feel like the Chiefs would want to go more so in-house because yes. their coaching staff has been together for a very long time. They know this offense. They know this team. They know the players' likes and dislikes, their strengths, their weaknesses, which is why in Kansas City – they're in a very good spot, right? There's very few teams in the NFL that can lose an OC that was the OC for a number one scoring offense and replace him with a guy that I think everybody kind of believes is still going to make them a top three scoring for offense sure. in the NFL. Yeah. Maybe that's more so the personnel you have, or maybe it's more so of having a coach like Andy Reid that makes things easier on you. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it, too, is that there's still the continuity with Andy Reid. 
and the great relationship that Matt Nagy and Patrick Mahomes have from Mahomes' rookie year when, when uh, Nagy was still the offensive coordinator. So, yeah, having that continuity is, is going to be important, I think, moving forward, at least for a little while longer. Uh, I do want to see them bring in some sort of fresh blood mm-hmm. uh, somewhere on the offensive staff just to bring in some new ideas. You want it to, you don't want it to be too insular because then you have what happened in New England this past year where they just brought in Bill Belichick. was like, oh, I'll just bring in these two yep. the special teams guy and a defensive guy to run the offense because I know them. Uh, you don't want it to end up that bad, and I'm not saying it could get that bad, but that's what happens when you have a very insular head coach that just wants his guys around, doesn't want any sort of external ideas, forces, anything like that. And I don't think I don't think uh, Andy Reid is stubborn to that, but I think at this point in his career he wants to keep some of his guys around, have some continuity. But I'd like to see them bring in somebody, you know, somebody different on the offensive staff just to bring something new. New minds. Yes. yes. I think new minds is, it would be very important for this offense as it continues to evolve. Of the head coaches that were hired, who, A, has the best chance to succeed, and B, a good head coach. And it doesn't have to be a brand new one. It could be Frank Reich. We'll add Frank Reich in this conversation. Of the new hires that happen in the NFL, who has the best chance to succeed, take his team to the postseason, win a division, so on and so forth, and who is going to be the quickest to be fired? Oh, quickest to be fired is probably probably Shane Steichen just because really? Jim Irsay. Well, Jay, think about Jim, it's Jim Irsay. You just never know. So that. It's going to be interesting. I, I may have just throw darts at the wall there. I thought um, you were going Gannon. No, Gannon definitely. <laughs> that, could, that could go downhill super fast. Um, but I'll, I'm going with Steichen just because the Colts situation is just ridiculous. Coach that leads this team to the playoffs is probably Sean Payton. Like, I think that, like, they're going to improve. Like, I don't think the Broncos are going to win the division, but they can win nine games and sneak into the back end of the playoffs. Frank Reich in Carolina is probably going to win that division. So I think there's a there's a lot to like with some of these guys, but there's just so much unknown uh, with a lot of it. I, and I will say this: I hope Tomiko Ryan succeeds oh, yeah. in Houston. That that guy did so much for that organization as a player. I hope he comes back as a coach and and wins big early for them. Well, Joel, thanks so much for your time as always, and we'll talk to you at this exact spot next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Let's do it. Talk some Royals next week. Yes, we'll be switching to Royals baseball next time Joel's on. We're out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. This is the Night Shift. I am your host, Jack Johnson. When we come back here, we'll talk about the third local team in college basketball being the Missouri Tigers. And Max Reber will join us at 930. That's next on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Final hour of the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, out here live at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. Big thank you to Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com, who's our insight for all things K-State sports. A big thank you to Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast, who joined us at 7.30. And also, as always, just a big thank you to Joel Penfield of the KC Sports Network, who joins us every single Wednesday from 8 to 9 out here 
at Hollywood Casino. Uh, with this being the final hour, this will be your last chance to come on by and grab some free tickets to the Kansas City Golf Show that will take place this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Overland Park Convention Center. Friday it will be on from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So come on by. They are right here on the table. They are yours to have. You don't need to talk with me about it. don't need to answer a trivia question. None of that stuff. Just grab the ticket and go on your way. You can grab one or two. Really, I'm just giving them out to whoever wants them here. The KC Golf Show at the Overland Park Convention Center this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Let's get into some college basketball scores from tonight and some NHL scores. No NBA tonight, but we'll preview some of those games for Thursday because you can watch them right out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. We'll do all that before our breakdown of the Missouri Tigers who had quite a thriller last night with a game-winning three by Nick Honor to top Mississippi State and move to I believe it was 20 and 8 if I'm not mistaken here Yahoo Sports is slow to load for me here but yeah 20 and 8 for the Missouri Tigers they're now 8 and 7 in conference play and we will get to them very very shortly but as for college basketball what's going on around the country the power five world auburn leads ole miss by seven at halftime 40 to 33 the tigers were a 12 and a half point favorite coming into the game the total at 136 and a half nc state and wake forest in a shootout 52 to 46 at half the wolfpack came in as a five and a half point favorite the over under at 156 and a half at halftime right now boy can things get any worse for North Carolina? They trail the Notre Dame Fighting Irish 27-19 to at half. The Tar Heels came in as a 6.5-point favorite, the over-under at 147.5. North Carolina is looking to avoid becoming the first preseason number one team in college basketball history to miss the NCAA tournament. Right now on the season, Carolina is 16-11 and per Joe Lunardi. In his recent bracketology, his bracket projections, North Carolina is one of the first teams out. Uh, in their last six games, North Carolina is 1-5. They have only won one game in the month of February, and that was at home against Clemson. They have lost back-to-back games to Miami and NC State. And after Notre Dame, it doesn't really get that much easier. They host number 6 Virginia, who lost tonight to Boston College. They'll go on the road to take on Florida State and wrap up their season against Duke in Chapel Hill. But nothing going right for North Carolina right now. They trail Notre Dame by 8, who is 10-17 and 17 on the year. Alabama trails South Carolina by 2 with 114 left to play in the first half. The Crimson Tide ranked second in the country and came into the game as a 16.5-point favorite. The over-under was at 148.5. At halftime between Wisconsin and Iowa, the Badgers lead 27-26. to The spread in the game was in favor of Wisconsin by 1.5 points. The over-under at 139.5. Some finals from college basketball. As we mentioned earlier, Boston College got their 14th win with a 63-48 win over Virginia, who falls to 21-5 and on the year. Clemson gets it's their 20th win of the year with a 91-73 win over Syracuse. We'll see if Syracuse can hang on and maybe just hold steady on the bubble heading into the NCAA tournament. But that loss tonight does not help one bit. Kentucky gets a big road win in Gainesville 
against Florida, 82-74, to looking more and more like Kentucky will be able to sneak in to the NCAA tournament as maybe a 7, 8, or a 9 seed. LSU gets a 7-point win over Vanderbilt at home. They cover the 2.5-point spread. The over also hit, which was at 140.5. And Maryland wins 88-70 to over Minnesota. They grab their 19th win of the year and cover that 15.5-point spread. The over also hit, which was at 130.5. In the NHL, the Blackhawks and Stars, no score with 10.35 left in the first period. The Flames up on the Coyotes, one nothing in the first period with 4.09 left. And the Islanders lead 2-1. to one or excuse me, the two to one final between the Islanders and the Jets. The Islanders move to thirty, twenty-four, and seven on the year. As for some games you can watch right here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino tomorrow night. The Nuggets will be on the road against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Cavs come in as a two and a half point favorite. The over under at two twenty-two and a half. It'll tip off at six p.m. Boston on the road against the Pacers. Celtics still trying to hold that number one spot in the Eastern Conference. They are forty-two and seventeen. Pacers twenty-six and thirty-four. The Celtics an eight and a half point favorite. The over under at two thirty-four and a half. That'll tip off at six p.m. The Pistons look to grab their sixteenth win on the road against the Orlando Magic, who are twenty-four and thirty-five on the year. The Magic are a six and a half point favorite. The over under at two twenty-six and a half. Another tip off at six p.m. That you can watch out here at the Barstool Sportsbook. Memphis and Philly uh, in a really, really interesting showdown between two teams from different conferences. The Grizzlies, of course, coming out of the West. And Minnesota, or excuse me, the Philadelphia 76ers out of the East. If I'm not mistaken there, I'm not uh, mixing up any teams here. So, yes, it'll be Memphis, who is the two-seed in the Western Conference right now, going up against the three-seed in the East, the Philadelphia 76ers. That game will tip off at 6.30 on TNT. Sixers, a four-and-a-half-point favorite, the over-under at 229-and-a-half. The Pelicans look to keep their winning record alive as they are 30-29 and 29 this season. They are on the road in Toronto against the Raptors, who are 28-31. The Raptors are a five-and-a-half-point favorite, the over-under at 225-and-a-half. Tip-off will be at 6.30 p.m. The Spurs, one of the worst teams in the NBA, Sticking in the state and going up against the Dallas Mavericks, Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving in the Mavs at 31 and 29. The Mavs at 13 and a half point favorite. The over under at 234 and a half. That'll tip off at 7:30 p.m. The Oklahoma City Thunder will look to move back to 500 against the Utah Jazz on the road. The Jazz a two and a half point favorite. The over under at 239 and a half. That'll tip off at 8 p.m. The Bay Area. Uh, Warriors will go up against the L.A. Lakers at, I'll just call it the Staples Center. The Lakers are a five-and-a-half point favorite going into the game. The over-under at 238-and-a-half. The Lakers 27-and-32 on the year. The Warriors look to move above 500 uh, once again this season. Tip-off will be at 9 p.m. on TNT. The Trailblazers will be on the road against Sacramento in one of the final games of the night. That will tip off at 9 p.m. The Kings a five-and-a-half point favorite. The over-under at 239-and-a-half. So that is your full rundown of games for tonight and looking a little bit ahead tomorrow for NBA action and Major League Baseball will be in action on Friday. At least the Kansas City Royals will be in their first spring training game against the Texas Rangers. They'll open up Cactus League play with Daniel Lynch on the bump. Jose Quas will also get some work in. Josh Stamont as well. And Mike Myers 
will go for the Royals on Saturday against the Rangers as well. But we can't just cover Kansas and Kansas State's basketball turnouts, their success, their production, because we did all of that in the first hour of the show, because we still need to touch on the Missouri Tigers, who had quite the thriller last night against Mississippi State, in which Nick Honor had a game-winning three with less than 10 seconds to go, and the defense held strong in the final seconds for Missouri to grab their 20th win of the season. Now, Missouri's had some ups and downs this year. They haven't really had the consistency that they had early on in the year, but when you're playing in a Power 5 conference like the SEC, no wins on the road should be taken for granted. And any games at home against lesser teams in the conference aren't always easy. And when you go back to their opening game of SEC play against Kentucky. Here's how it's gone for Missouri, who is more than likely going to be a 6 or 7 seed in the NCAA tournament. They opened up with a 14-point win over Kentucky at home, then lost to Arkansas by 6, then bounced back with a 3-point win against Vanderbilt, then lost back-to-back games to A&M and Florida on the road, then responded to that with a win against Arkansas 79-76 in a big comeback game for the Tigers on January 18th. Then they lose to Alabama by 21 at home. Respond to that with a three-game winning streak over Ole Miss on the road, Iowa State and LSU back-to-back games at home. Then they lose to Mississippi State and Starkville by 11. Respond to that with back-to-back wins against South Carolina and Tennessee on the road. Then they lose to Auburn by 33 this past Tuesday on Valentine's Day and lose to A&M by 9 at home on Saturday. And then they get their 66-64 win over Mississippi State with that big shot from Nick Honor. Uh, Listen, I don't think you can really tell the story of the 2023 Missouri Tigers and just ignore what their offense has been able to do. Uh, It's one of the better offenses in the country. You know, their adjusted offensive rating per Ken Palm is 118.4. That is better than teams like Texas Alabama, it's better than Kansas, it's better than A&M, it's better than UCLA, it's better than Indiana. It is a damn good offense, and I think we always knew that. Going way, way back to the non-conference schedule, they are a balanced team, and it's a team that's consisting mostly of transfers. Uh, Other than Kobe Brown, you know, Demoy Hodge, a guy that has been incredible this year for Missouri in the starting five, averaging just under 14 points per game, but shoots about 46% from the field and nearly 40% from deep. Kobe Brown shoots over 46% from deep, and for a big guy, you'll absolutely take that as a stretch for DeAndre Golston. Uh, Ten points for that starting five as well. And Isaiah Mosley, who's had his moments of late in SEC play, but the middle part of the season in SEC play, he's averaging just under 10 points per game. Noah Carter, nine points per game. Nick Honor has eight points per game as well. He shoots just under 40% from deep. Sean East, eight points per game. And that's probably the most deadly aspect of this Missouri team. They are so balanced top to bottom. And though they have Kobe Brown, who's the guy that does the majority of that scoring, I mean, they can really have a number of guys off their bench provide valuable minutes for this team. I mean, you go back to the game last night against Mississippi State. It wasn't one of their highest offensive totals, but look at how uh, it was kind of spread around a little bit. Kobe Brown gives you 17 points. Demoy Hodge gives you 16. Nick Honor gives you 10 off the bench. Noah Carter gives you 10 as well. And then you have Gomillion who gives you 8. So that is 18 points off your bench. And if Missouri is going to go anywhere in the NCAA tournament, a large part of it is going to be from their bench play. The inconsistency worries me, but I think Missouri's also ahead of schedule with a guy like Dennis Gates. 
know, Dennis Gates has flipped around this Missouri program. They were a, a laughing stock last year, losing to UMKC at home, and that's no discredit to UMKC, but I don't think Missouri fans had the anticipations of losing to UMKC at any point in the last couple of years and now being an SEC program. But UMKC got the best of them, in fact, kind of ran them out of their own gym last year. And now Dennis Gates, you just flip that around, he's been incredible this year for the Tigers and doing so by kind of overhauling this roster. I compare it a lot to the Kansas State team. You know, Kansas State had to overhaul their roster as well. They missed out on keeping Nigel Pack, who then transferred to Miami, and we've seen how Kansas State has improved. Kansas State has stuck around in the top 15 for a large portion this year. Missouri, I think, deserves to be ranked, but the inconsistency has likely scared away the committee a little bit, but 20 wins is 20 wins, and they've had some serious Power 5 wins, and that's coming on the road in Knoxville against Tennessee. They've had a big win at home against Arkansas, who's going to be likely a 7, 8, or 9 seed in the NCAA tournament. They've had big wins against Kentucky. I mean, Missouri has been there, and I think that some fans, some pessimistic fans, would wait for the downfall. I mean, sometimes when teams are ahead of schedule, you always wait for that point. They return to normalcy. They fall back down to earth. And Missouri and Kansas State certainly had their moments this year where you go, all right, there's the old version of those teams, but they're well coached. There's not much more you can say. And this is coming from a guy that graduated from Kansas. You never, uh, obviously, they teach you never say nice things about Missouri. But when you're looking at a basketball standpoint here, this is a Missouri team that's going to be a very tough out as a six or a seven seed. And I think a large part of that goes to Kobe Brown. Kobe Brown is such a tough matchup as a stretch four because Missouri's not going to dominate teams with their size. They're not going to out physical you. But when they face a team that doesn't maybe have the most athletic four or number five guy. Kobe Brown can expose that. Kobe Brown is a guy that can shoot it well from deep, as we mentioned, 46.7% from deep. It's just a team that consistently can find that production from a number of guys in the starting five and then also off the bench. I think Noah Carter is another guy kind of like Kobe Brown, who's a little bit of a stretch four and can be a difficult matchup for a team that can't bring guys out beyond the free throw line. Now where Missouri can be maybe on the not-so-favorable side of an NCAA tournament matchup is getting a team that is great in transition. I mean, you go back to the games against Auburn and Kansas. Those are two teams that thrive in transition. They're fast. They want to get the ball out of the net and go. They want to force turnovers and get out there and get steals. They want to get blocks and, and play that type of fast basketball. And Missouri, I think they can try to hang with teams like that, but they more so like to score with a little bit of a quicker offense, but I wouldn't say... Uh, they can get into those track meets with many teams. Early on, we saw in non-conference play, Missouri overwhelmed teams by being overly aggressive on the defensive end, forcing turnovers, getting out and running, kind of being that transition team. Then when they were undefeated and played Kansas, they were a team that tried to gamble. They tried to gamble on Kansas, and Kansas exposed that over and over again. And I think in SEC play, we've seen them a couple of times try to be overly aggressive, win games by pressuring teams, going for the steals, you know, and that can get you into trouble. That could be the downfall for the Missouri Tigers. Every team locally here has its downfall. I think when you look at a team like Kansas State, their downfall will be you know, turning the ball over left and right like they've done or having a slump come from Keontae Johnson or Marquise Noel with, with Missouri. I think it's being overly aggressive. I think it's finding a team that can out-track meet them without finding a better saying right there. I think they're a team that can beat them in transition. That's really Missouri's nightmare scenario. As for Kansas, I think it's when you know Jalen Wilson is the only scorer for that offense and the other guys become silent. Every team in the country 
has its weaknesses. And for Missouri, I think it's a team that uh, certainly can go far in the tournament. It's going to come down to matchups more, more so than anything. Uh, I think locally right now, when you look at the three teams, Kansas can hang with the majority of teams in the country. Kansas State, I think, can at their best. I am curious how you know a team like Kansas State could fare against you know per se Arizona or against a UCLA in a neutral environment. I'm curious what some of those early round matchups would look like for a team like Kansas State and Missouri because those are teams that haven't really appeared in the NCAA tournament a couple of times over the last few years, and it's a different expectation as well. I think the best thing for Missouri is that they can go into the NCAA tournament not really having the pressure of being this team that needs to always get out of the first and second round. Of course, that should be the goal. If you're Kansas State and you're Missouri, you should not be satisfied with the first weekend exit. But I think Missouri can play with a little bit of house money here. I think Missouri has the chance to be that 7 or an 8 seed that can really give fits to a 2 or a 1 seed. I like what I've seen. I really liked what I've seen from this Missouri team time and time again. And though the consistency hasn't really been there, Ken Palm likes their offense. Defensively, not so much, but I think it makes it more fun. I think it makes it a fun and unique team and a team that has a chance to be special when they are just trying to win games offensively. You're trying to gamble. You're trying to be aggressive defensively because when you are playing as the underdog role, you need to have those moments in those games where you try to overwhelm a team. You try to make them back down a little bit. And Missouri is a team that has shown in SEC play that they can make even top teams uh, in their conference. A team like Tennessee back down a bit. Even Kentucky has shown at times they can be a top team, not consistently, but they made Kentucky back down a little bit. They made Arkansas back down a little bit. They've hung with A&M. So that, to me, is what has impressed me most in year one with Dennis Gates as head coach of the Missouri Tigers. Dylan, I've been talking on and on now for about the last two and a half hours. Any thoughts on these three local teams and where they stand in the college basketball season? Uh, You know, it's kind of just same old, same old for Kansas, but it's really interesting to watch K-State and just listen to kind of the panic it felt like for a couple weeks there, and then now it feels like are they – I'm trying to catch up. I've been basically all into football, so – you know, I don't know. It just it's crazy to see Kansas always in the top five, and Grady Dick starting to really play well. It seems like down the stretch, which is when you want it to happen as well. I don't know. It, it's it's so hard to win six games, but it's crazy that we're really prime position for back to back championships. I mean, six games in a row is hard for any team. That's why I don't know when the last back to back championship was, but yeah, that's kind of interesting to me. Is that we're kind of close to that and because the Chiefs won the Super Bowl people like me who are not smart I haven't really paid much attention because we've been paying attention to all the all the Chiefs and NFL stuff Kansas is primed for a back-to-back championship it's it has been a wild couple of weeks a wild couple of months but I think what's been lost in all the chaos with the Kansas City Chiefs is that these local teams have really thrived you know, yes. Kansas coming on strong of late. Kansas State's been incredible this year. Missouri's been damn good this year. It's a fun time here in Kansas City. And if you're a fan of all these teams, I mean, I know you never want to root for rivals. Right. Uh, but here working in sports radio, oh, it always uh, is a benefit when every single team is worth watching here. And you can't really say that over the last couple of years. You can't really say that every team has been interesting. And even go back to football this year. Kansas, Kansas State, and Missouri were all intriguing yeah. watches on Saturday. I mean, I can't remember a time 
in Kansas City. Uh, I know there has been times, but I feel like where every single team has been truly consistent enough in winning a lot of games, being in there, and even making it to the postseason. Yeah. And really, it's kind of just, it's insane that um, the the teams that, you know, the football and basketball have just been rolling this year. And it kind of made it go by quick. I mean, we're already in the spring. Spring training is starting. Hopefully the Royals can kind of continue that. Yeah, I think they're the the last domino to fall here. Right. If the Royals can can make things interesting, and that actually timed us out perfectly, uh, because with all of our college basketball talk coming to an end here, as we covered KU, uh, K State, and Missouri, KU and K State both in the first hour. Uh, Joel Penfield to join us eight tonight was pretty much all NFL talk, and then. Uh, fortunately, if you stuck around this long and you are a Missouri fan, you got some of your Missouri fix in because when we do come back uh, around 925, 926, we'll be joined by Max Reaper of Royals Review. And a reminder, as always, that if you miss any parts of our show, you can always go to our podcast page. Uh, that'll be out usually shortly after the show. Uh, and then you'll be able to go online and re-listen to or listen to the first time to some of the guests we've had on. If you are a big K-State guy, uh, Ryan Gilbert, join us at the very top of the show so you can jump right in the show and listen to some K-State hoops there. Braden Turner joined us around 7.30. As we mentioned, Joel joined us from 8 to 9 if you still want to get your fix in for NFL. And then if you're a Missouri fan, you can clip this 20-minute segment that we opened up the third and final hour of the night shift on. But when we come back here at the Barstool Sportsbook in Hollywood Casino, it's time to talk some Royals baseball as the boys in blue will be back in action for the first time this season on Friday to open up Cactus League play against the Texas Rangers. We'll talk all that. We'll talk position battles. We'll talk how the rotation shakes out, the bullpen shakes out, and what first-year expectations should be for Matt Quattraro in Kansas City. Max Reaper of Royals Review joins us next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. the night shift on sports radio 810 whb i am your host jack johnson coming to you live from kck at again the barstool sportsbook in hollywood casino it's time to talk some royals baseball and go to the phone lines and chat with max reaper of royals review max thanks for taking some time out of your night schedule and joining the show to talk some royals baseball absolutely jack thanks for having me on man now, I think the biggest news of this week has been the injury news to Drew Waters being sidelined for the next six weeks with an oblique injury. Now, I know that probably means that Kyle Isbell will be the opening day center fielder for the Kansas City Royals, but do you think there's any other maybe outside chance for somebody like a Samad Taylor? Do you think the Royals would be considering Edward Olivares as an everyday center fielder despite some of his defensive metrics, or is it pretty much Kyle Isbell's spot to lose at this point? Yeah, well, first of all, you, you have to really feel for Drew Waters. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, really struggled in the Braves organization for a long time and gets a fresh start with the Royals and, and kind of simplifies things under Alex Zumwalt. Has a, a really good stretch there for 30 games. Seems like he's got things figured out. Can't win to this year as, as, as a, I think, a, had a leg up on getting at least a starting job or at least, a, you know, a role where he's going to get a lot of playing time. And then to come out of the gate, like, first day of full workouts, 
and you or injure your oblique and he's out for six weeks, which, you know, early in the year like this, he can still come back and play most of the season. So, uh, you know, hopefully he'll still get some significant playing time this year. But certainly you don't want to get what, you know, it's a pretty critical year for him off to a, this kind of start. So I do feel for him. But, yeah, I think Kyle Isbell, you know, this, this you know, you don't like to see injuries, but this, this does present opportunities, right, for other players, especially young players that are trying to earn uh, playing time. And Kyle Isbell, I think, had the leg up on the center field job anyway, uh, with I think Waters maybe competing more for a right field job. So I think this kind of secures Isbell's place in the opening a roster for center field. Um, I think he'll get a, a pretty long look there. But I think it does uh, create some, some, you know, there's a domino effect. There's, there's going to be some, some playing time open somewhere. Um, Edward Oliveira, I, I, you know, I think he's a corner outfielder. I don't think you'll see him much in center. Uh, but I think this does give him a little more playing time in right, whereas, you know, before, if Waters was in right field, maybe Oliveira's DH is more. So maybe this gives them a chance to evaluate to see if he's going to be a guy that can swing it defensively. And I know that they've kind of worked with, uh, worked with him to improve some of his is, is you know mechanics and fundamentals out there, uh, so you know maybe with an extended look out there he can improve and and with his bat you know if his bat has been as good as it's been in, in the short stints with the Royals and you know he could actually uh, we could have a nice a corner outfielder there, uh, so that, that would give you some options and it may also create you know that, again the domino effect if he's playing right field instead of DH maybe that opens up a roster spot for a guy like Fran Mel Reyes who they signed uh, last week on a minor league deal. A guy that has two thirty home run seasons under his belt, but you know, obviously had a terrible season last year with Cleveland and the Cubs, uh, but is looking for another opportunity. And you know, if he gets a, a shot here to start the year and gets off to a hot start, maybe he stays in the lineup. And, and suddenly the Royals either have a piece, you know, for the future, or uh, you know, potentially flippable trade asset this summer. So it's nice to have these kind of options. I think that's that's why they want to build up this kind of depth. So that when a guy goes down, they're not in the lurch. You know, they've got other guys they can turn to, and and we'll see. Maybe some of these guys will pan out, but at least this will create some opportunities to get um, extended looks at some of these other players. It's perfect you brought up Fran Mill Reyes because that was going to be my next question to you. Of if you could give me a percentage, what are the chances you think Fran Mill Reyes makes the opening day roster for the Kansas City Royals? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Uh, I, I think they signed him for a reason. I think they wanted to get a right-handed bat this offseason. They looked at the options out there. Either they, you know, weren't able to come to terms with some guys, or um, you know, you know, there wasn't a good fit out there. But but Reyes is out there, and I think you know, uh, it, it, in some ways, you know, it, you don't want to like, uh, you know, with with, with Vinny Pasquantino at first base and Nick Prada behind him, you don't want to really clog DH too much. And I think look, Reyes is a DH at this point. I don't. I know he can play some right field, and you may see him out there once in a while, but he's probably more suited at DH at this point. Um, and I, so I know you don't want to like clog that position too much with, you know, if Nick Prado's ready, of course, Salvi's got to play over there, uh, you know, on, on you know, at least quarter of the time. So, uh, I don't know if we'll see Reyes as a long-term piece, but, uh, certainly, you know, he's a guy that has some potential, like I said, two thirty home run seasons. And if he can protect a guy like Vinny Pasquantino a little bit, make pitchers think a little, you know, twice before they, uh, you know, pitch around him, then, uh, I think that's going to help these young hitters a little bit. So it's nice to have. If, if he can kind of recapture that magic that he had a couple years ago, which is when I'm, you know, 2021, you know, it's a pretty good hitter, uh, then I think the Royals have a, a nice piece there that they can, you know, put around some of the young hitters so they're not completely relying on a bunch of first and second year players. Now, Fangraphs just put out their top 100 prospects of 2023, and the Royals didn't have any 
uh, in those top 100. Now they are a very young team, graduating a lot of guys from last year. But what should the concern level be amongst Royals fans, knowing that going into this year per fan, fan graphs, which you're, if you are somebody that's into analytics, you like those metrics, they are rating a lot of those players and basing, basing them on how good they will be or project to be through analytics. And if the Royals have nobody in the top 100, what should the concern level be maybe on a scale of 1 to 10? Well, yeah, it's less than panic mode, but 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 certainly a level of concern, like a seven. Uh, and and look, I think Gavin Cross should be on that list. They're the first round pick from last year. And in the chat, Eric Long and Hanging of Fangraphs kind of explained that you know they they have. I think it sounds like they have a little bit of a bias against corner outfielders, which is what they see Cross as uh, until they kind of are close to the big league ready. Um, so I think if Cross has a, a really good year this year. He'll, he'll be on that list. Now, he's been on a, a bunch of other lists, too. So I consider him a top 100 prospect. Uh, but, but the fact is there, you can't really make an argument for too many other guys to be on there. I mean, I think Michael Garcia made a list uh, for Kylie McDaniel over at ESPN. He was, he was pretty high on Garcia. A lot of other people say, yeah, he's probably a utility infielder unless he develops some power. Uh, and after that, it's like, well, I mean, Frank Mazzucato next year, if he has a really good year, uh, ben Kaderna, maybe if he puts it all together this year. Uh, Carter Jensen, you know, could jump on a list, but certainly not anyone right now is is really banging down the door to be on that list. Now, look, prospect lists are just kind of evaluations at a snapshot in time. Uh, certainly, there are good players like Whit Merrifield who never sniffed a top 100 list, but you do want you know guys that are highly rated. And and look, there's a lot of guys in the system that didn't have very good seasons last year. And it makes you kind of wonder when, when J.J. Piccolo says stuff like, we think our minor league pitching development's good. It's, it's the major league, you know, uh, instruction that's been the problem. I, I don't know if the, the, med, the data backs it up. And I know, you know, the on-field results aren't everything. I mean, I'm sure they're evaluating things, you know, on all aspects of the game. But it's not, it's not good when Azel Lacey has the kind of season he had, he had last year. It's not good that Frank Mazzucato had a super high walk rate last year. You know, it's not good that a lot of these pitchers seem to take a step backwards uh, like Alec Marsh last year. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty high level of concern, and yeah, they did graduate a lot of guys, so I get that. But the Royals need to be a team that's like constantly churning guys out, right? We need to develop that, uh, that pipeline of talent because we're not going to go out and spend money on the free agent market. Uh, and so when you see teams like Tampa Bay and Cleveland and Baltimore as a bunch of guys on the list, that's what the Royals need to be. It, it, and even if you graduate a couple guys, you need a couple more guys to replace them because not all these guys are going to pan out. And, and if you're saying, well, we don't have anyone behind them because we graduated these players, well, then these, these, these players at the major league level really better pan out, right? We can't have too many busts at the major league level. Um, and so, yeah, I, that concerns me a little bit. Uh, but, well, you know, we'll see. I think they do have some guys that could jump onto a list with a good season this year. Like I mentioned, the Coderna, I think he's got that kind of potential. I think Mazzucato, if he, you know, irons out the walks, I think he could be a guy that rises up some lists. Uh, Carter Jensen's a guy I'm pretty high on. I think he's, his walk numbers are, are really excellent. He's got some um, power potential as well as a catcher. So I think there's some guys that to be excited about, but uh, it, it may take some time for them to kind of uh, rise up these prospect lists and become serious uh, prospects on people's radars. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review. Now, Max, uh, the Royals pitching status, as I'm sure you saw, has come out with the slogan of Raid the Zone. So are we here to believe that a Royals coaching staff is really valuing throwing strikes or attacking the zone effectively. I mean, what do you make of this new slogan for Royals pitchers? As we all know, last year, nobody tried to raid the zone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like kind of obvious, like 
throw the ball down the middle, dummy. Like, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but, you know, it's, last year it sounds like they were having catchers set up in the corners, and, and that didn't give pitchers much margin for error. Like, if they missed a little bit off the plate, uh, then that, that's going to be a ball called a ball. And, you know, Salvi and M.G. Melendez aren't – they haven't uh, done well in framing as far as the metrics go, uh, which I know, framing, you know people have their issues with framing, but it, it's a thing. You know, there are umpires that are imperfect, and they get fooled, and framing matters. And, and by all the metrics, Salvi and M.J. Melendez haven't been good at it. Now, I think that may change. Paul Hoover is the guy they brought in to be bench coach this year. He's supposedly working with these guys to – to uh, to work on their framing, and it sounds like Salvi's pretty open to it, which is good. Um, but but this year, you know, some of it's pitching too. Some of it's uh, the pitchers were trying to nibble too much, and I think just telling them, hey, throw it down the middle, trust your movement. You know, don't let the guy square up on it, but but trust that movement, and and will and it'll hit the corners, and uh, and but we want we, we want you to be in the zone, and, that, and I think that's great. I mean, I think that's that's a really good um, kind of way, especially with younger pitchers, where you don't want to teach them to nibble, you want them to kind of trust their stuff. Uh, so I, I'm I, I like the I like what they're saying. We'll see if they can kind of implement it. Uh, but uh, so I, you know, it's good that they're recognizing that that walks are the big issue here. I think it's pretty obvious. But uh, yeah, it, se- it seems like they're attacking it. And, and I, I, you know, it's 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 a good message, and it's a simple message too, because you don't want to overcomplicate things with a lot of uh, you know concepts that these pitchers can't understand. Uh, but I, I, did, I did have to laugh that one of the one of the things they were trying, I guess they, they had never had never tried before, was you know showing video from the side for a pitcher, uh, you know, to see his delivery. I guess that wasn't something they had done before, so it kind of makes you wonder how much how much catching up they have to do in terms of their pitcher development from what they had before. So, But at least they're on the right track, and we'll see. You know, maybe maybe we can start seeing results pretty quickly here because, uh, you know, these are pitchers with some talent, and if they can if they like, figure out how to throw strikes, I think we could have, uh, you know, some, some really good really good results here. Max, is that maybe the most infuriating thing of this Royals rebuild, that going back to 2018, which everybody seemed to deem as Dayton Moore's most important draft, he had to be able to hit on a lot of guys. And when he got some of these guys, scouts said, you know, they're projected to be pretty well. They like guys like Singer. They like Coar, They like Lynch. But then now you're in 2023, and you look back and almost go, man, if some of these pitchers weren't even learning some of the data or they weren't getting the right angles, the right coaching, that basically these last four years have been for naught. They didn't really gain anything from this because they didn't get the right coaching. Are we able to look back now and go basically from 2019 to 2022, all those young guys they took, all the young pitchers, they never improved because they never had the chance or maybe the data or the coaching to improve? Well, and the good thing is I don't think it's too late for these guys. I mean, I, I think you know other teams like the Rays have shown that there are lots of guys that, that are lost in other organizations. They take them in like lost souls and it kind of show them the data. They're able to change their mechanics or change you know, some little tweak, and suddenly they're able to get this you know, terrific performance from them. Like Jason Adam, like a guy the Royals just you know, didn't have, couldn't get him to throw strikes. He was a, a nothing reliever here. He bounces around the league a little bit, ends up in Tampa Bay. They, they take him in, and he suddenly he's an all-star caliber reliever, one of the best in the league. Uh, so I don't, and, and I think other teams are looking at our pitchers and saying, you know, th- those are good pitchers. We'd love to get our hands on them. We think we can, we, we think we can fix them. Uh, so if the Royals, you know, if they if they have the pitching coach apparatus that uh, they, you know, that they believe can can get some results, and they have good pitchers to work with. I mean, I, I like the draft pick that they had in 2018. I liked, uh, you know, Daniel Lynch. I liked him quite a bit. Uh, Chris Bubich was a guy. I mean, I heard Keith Law in an interview say, man. Chris Bubich has the you know the stuff to be a fifth starter in this league. I mean his, his upside isn't super high, but 
he should be a fifth starter. Like he should be giving you more consistent results. So how why have they not been able to unlock that talent yet? Um, you know, Brady Singer they have. So that's at least a step in the right direction. But uh, it is a little infuriating that they they got these talented pitchers. It's not a necessarily a drafting uh, problem here. They they've identified some pretty good pitchers. They just haven't been able to, to develop them at the major league level. And so we'll see. Uh, you know, they they put a lot of uh, kind of hope on this on Brian Sweeney and uh, Zach Bove and, 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 and Paul Gibson, their director of pitching. Uh, and, and so we should see some results pretty quickly because uh, they seem like they, they've identified some of these problems and, and, and have these guys uh, headed in the right direction. So, you know, if these guys are, are, are talented, we should uh, see, see some results as, as soon as this year, I would think. With the Cactus League opener on Friday against Texas, it'll be Daniel Lynch getting the start, Jose Quas getting some work in, Josh Stallman as well, then Mike Myers going on Saturday against those same Texas Rangers. Max, who do you have more confidence in right now? The starting rotation, who I guess we could probably assume will be Brady Singer, Zach Greinke, uh, Jordan Lyles, Daniel Lynch, and let's go with Brad Keller, or the rest of the bullpen that will have guys like Stallmont, Barlow, Chapman, Josh Taylor, uh, maybe a guy like Richard Lovelady, Taylor Clark. Uh, who would you have more confidence in right now to be the better quote-unquote pitching staff? Is it the bullpen, the relievers, or is it the starting five with the rotation? I think the the, the bullpen could be sneaky. I don't want to say necessarily good, but but not bad. You know, like I think there's some good arms out there. I think yeah. I mean, Scott Barlow, I think you know what you got. I, the velocity drop concerns me a little bit, but he was still able to get pretty good results last year despite not being able to throw as hard as he has in the past. And then you, you coupled that with Chapman, who, you know, he's he's at an advanced stage, but, you know, one-year deal, we'll see what he has. I think we'll know pretty quickly. If he's if he's throwing 95 in April, then we can kind of say, okay, this may not last very long. But if he's, if he's back up, you know, they, they think they've identified something with him to get better results than they saw last year uh, when he was with the Yankees. So if they're able to figure that out, then, then we could get, you know, maybe close, not not as, as peak Chapman, but but pretty good. You know, pretty good Chapman is, is still better than most guys. So uh, Dylan Coleman, I think, is, is really intriguing as a late-inning reliever. I think uh, Amir Garrett, I know he can be frustrating with the walks, but he was pretty hard to hit last year. Uh, you know, I think guys were hitting off like 180 off him last year. So he's kind of – I think he's a little bit better than maybe his numbers uh, would suggest. And then Josh Stallman, I think, is a, is a good bounce-back candidate. I saw he might be adding some pitches to his arsenal as well. If he can stay healthy, I think he could be, uh, you know, a pretty pretty nice late inning option too. So, I think there's some decent arms out there. I know, you know, what what they do with these arms, we'll see. I, I imagine a lot of them will be trade uh, uh, options in July. But some of these guys are wanna, they're going to want to hang on to. So, uh, I still think, I, I, and I think having a lot of options out there will will prevent them from you know burning out anyone's arm. I mean, I the more options you have the less guys you need to have out there running on fumes. So, uh, you know, we'll see what we'll see what they have with the bullpen. Rotation, I think, is still – I mean, just because you have Jordan Lyles and, you know, Brian Yarbrough, guys like Yarbrough are probably going to get some starts. Zach Granke, who – I love Zach, but, you know, the, the potential is not – you know, it's not a super high upside with any of those guys because of their age. And there's going to be a lot of starts like that. So I'm not super excited about that. I mean, I'd love to see Daniel Lynch break through this year. I'd love to see – Chris Bubich or Jonathan Heasley breakthrough this year. Uh, but I think right now the bullpen actually kind of intrigues me more um, other than, you know, maybe seeing Lynch uh, put it all together. And, uh, again, he's a guy I think could really benefit from having Brian Sweeney in his corner. I mean, I like the number. His first inning numbers the last uh, two years, he's like the second worst pitcher in baseball in the first inning, which tells me he wasn't prepared for his starts, which tells me 
you know, the coaching staff may not have him prepared for a start. So just having a different coaching staff, I think, could be a huge benefit for him, uh, especially if they're able to, you know, raid the zone and get him to throw strikes. Because when he throws strikes, he can be a, a very effective pitcher. So I've got some, I still got a lot of high hopes for him. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review, previewing uh, spring training for your boys in blue. This might be a little bit of a stupid question because we haven't even seen this team play on the baseball diamond down in Surprise, Arizona. But if you could put money on one guy to maybe shock everybody and break camp with the Royals and be there on opening day against the Minnesota Twins in late March, who would that guy be? A surprising roster? Uh, Who? I don't know, because it feels like this roster is pretty well set, um, aside from maybe a lot, the last couple roster spots. So I don't know if there's a whole lot of room for a guy to bust through. I mean, the fact they mentioned Samad Taylor, you mentioned him at the beginning of this yeah. interview. I mean, the, the fact they mentioned him was kind of interesting, just because he wasn't really on my radar. He's a guy I like. Uh, they got him from the Blue Jays and the Whit Merrifield deal, and he's kind of a kind of a poor man's Whit Merrifield. You know, he plays second base and outfield and has pretty good speed but he missed you know the entire second half with injury uh so he hasn't really seen a lot of game action other than the arizona fall league uh so you know so i thought maybe you know he'd start out in the minors but it wouldn't surprise me if he makes the team as a as a bench guy you know he's, he's got kind of the skill set you like to see out of a bench guy you know positional versatility can run a little bit does you know has a little bit of pop um so that, that would be kind of an interesting uh guy to make the team Tyler Gentry might be an interesting guy to make the team. Uh, you know, with uh, Drew Waters going down, that opens up an outfield spot. There's not a lot of outfielders in camp. Uh, and a guy like Tyler Gentry, who put together a really underrated season in the minors, and I think probably got, should have gotten at least a little buzz for, for making a top 100 prospect list. But he's a guy that has pretty good pop, uh, can run a little bit, play corner outfield, maybe stretch him in center field a little bit. Um, yeah, he'd be kind of intriguing as a guy that can make the team. You know, maybe like Kyle Isbell did back in 2020, kind of surprise you and make the team and maybe uh, get some playing time early on. So I think there is, you know, most of those spots are filled, but, you know, there's always room for a team that's coming off uh, the season the Royals came off uh, to, to make a team. You know, there's, there's going to be jobs that can be had for the spring. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if a guy like that busts through and maybe opens some eyes. Now, there's been some great articles come out by Annie Rogers, who covers the Royals for MLB.com, and one of them that really stood out to me was that piece on Daniel Lynch. And if you go find the tweet back on Annie's Twitter page, it's basically Daniel Lynch saying, you know, last year I had some ups, I had some downs, and there was inconsistency. And he said something along the lines of, I think there was obvious reasons as to why. I got the chance to skim the article. I really didn't go in depth on it, but I did get to see a, read a good chunk of it where it was very intriguing to me to kind of hear Daniel Lynch's side of things of why he struggled last year. But do you think maybe that was a little bit of a nod to the coaching of maybe not being as prepared, working with too many pitches? I mean, we see around baseball all the time the most successful teams with the best pitching staffs, they're not asking their guys to have five or six pitches in their arsenal. Unless you're Zach Granke and you've made it that far, you really need to just have one or two pitches that are really good. And surprise, surprise the Royals' best starter last year was Brady Singer, who basically had that two-seam sinker and a slider. He threw the changeup a little bit more than he did in years past, but for the most part, he was damn good with about two pitches. So was Daniel Lynch maybe nodding at the coaching staff saying, hey, we just it's obvious why I was kind of inconsistency. I wasn't inconsistent. I wasn't as prepared. Or was that more sort of saying obvious reasons I didn't have the best stuff? Well, yeah, I've gotten a, a few sub, kind of like subliminal messages from the players about Last year's coaching staff. I think Nicky Lopez had a quote a couple weeks ago about, you know, it wasn't, you know, it sounded like it wasn't the, 
most lax, uh, you know, relaxed clubhouse last year. It sounded like it was pretty tense. Uh, and there was a lot of whispers about how Mike Matheny ran the ship, and it was pretty tense, and his kind of win-at-all-cost each game uh, attitude kind of was a, really wore on the players. It was a little bit of a grind. And, of course, you know, there's also the preparation thing, with, with especially with the pitchers that I talked about. Uh, and so I could, I could see that. And what I've gotten a lot from the new coaching staff is that they really want to kind of simplify things. And I know that, you know, when, when you bring in guys that are all about data and analytics, you always worry about, you know, uh, analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis where you know, they're overthinking things and trying to do too much and, you know, it just, it just doesn't work. And I think they've kind of gone the opposite direction of saying, okay, here's what we know works, you know, thanks to the data, but we're going to keep it nice and simple and we just want you to do this one thing, you know, raid the zone or with the hitting side. I think it's, it's like they want to just identify good pitches and do damage to them. Um, you know, simple things that kind of seem obvious, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, you know, it's, it's sometimes you need to hear that message and see with maybe the data to back it up to, to kind of really hammer that point home with, with these players. And, and, and it seems like they've been very receptive to it. And I think, you know, we heard all offseason J.J. Piccolo talk about what he wanted out of the new manager and coaching staff, communication. And there's probably a reason why he stressed that so much, right? I mean, you know, they, it doesn't sound like they were getting that last year. And so they want someone who's able to communicate these maybe more complex ideas from the analytics staff onto the field in a simple, digestible way that players can understand and buy into it. And so right now it sounds like they're, they're doing all the right things. I mean, it, 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 this is what we've needed for, frankly, a long time. And it's nice to be, you know, with these young players that are that are buying, it sounds like they're buying in. And then, look, it, it, this is – you know, players all over the league are buying into this. So if the Royals weren't weren't going to buy in, well, they're they're going to be out of step with the rest of baseball. Uh, but it's nice to hear them kind of saying the right things. And it sounds like there's a much different uh, kind of atmosphere in that clubhouse. So you know, that sometimes you get make a change just because you need to shake things up. And if nothing else, you know, it, it, you kind of needed that uh, that change in the clubhouse uh, going from Athena to Quattro. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review and just the last couple questions for you here, Max. But I think it was Nicky Lopez that said this, and I thought it was pretty hilarious when speaking to Matt Quattraro, and he said, there's days that I don't even know he's here until he's actually there. Like, he's just that quiet in the background and, and kind of having that more laxed approach, whereas we heard last year, uh, kind of a tense clubhouse. Mike Matheny ran things differently, and that goes back to his days in St. Louis where, you know, we had the veterans really bully the rookies and make them feel uncomfortable and let them know that uh, they were beneath the veterans. But now you hear from Bobby Witt Jr. that, you know, Matt Quattrall is asking for young guys' input. How can we be better? This is your guys' baseball team. I want to make this the smoothest transition as possible. Do you like that approach from a manager that's so hands-off that really uh, he kind of stays in the background, he just observes everything, instead of kind of that in-your-face type of manager that maybe intense and go, we need to win every single game, but maybe Matt Quattraro is better equipped to handle this team because he knows it's going to take a couple of years to get this team to where it needs to be. Yeah, I think when you're when you're first coming over as a new manager to a new organization, I think you kind of want to take a little bit more hands-off role. I mean, you know, he's trying. He's trying to. He's trying to learn these personalities. He's trying to learn this organization. You know, he's still pretty new to all this. He's still still learning names. You know, uh, and so you don't want to come in and start barking orders. And say, I know how to do this, especially when he's never managed before. So I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense to come in with a very open-minded approach. You know, communicating with players. Say, hey, what 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 are your ideas? How can we improve this? That that makes a lot of sense to me. He is very laid back, though. I, I will say that that what I read about him before they hired him. It, it sounded good. I mean, I think he's. I think this was a great hire. His his kind of laid back approach did concern me a little bit. I mean, I won't lie. I won't, I won't lie. I think he does have a 
reputation of being a very laid-back, kind of stoic. Uh, he's not going to be yelling at umpires that much, I don't think. I don't, I, you know, I don't think he's going to be, like, turning over uh, tables in the clubhouse when they lose. <laughs> but he's he's going he's gonna to be having an even keel, which, you know, for a young team that's going to go through a lot of ups and downs, I think that's probably best. I don't think you want a guy that's yelling at them every night they lose because they're going to lose a lot of games this year. Uh, they're going to take their lumps. Um, so a steady-hand approach is, 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 is going to be good in a lot of respects. I just do worry sometimes if, if there are issues, uh, you know, is he going to be able to, to take control of the situation, show leadership? Because um, you know, he's never been a manager before. Uh, and so, you know, that, that'll be his test. And, and, look, he's a smart guy. He's come from a really good organization. Everything I've heard about him has been positive. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm still pretty confident he can handle these situations. But he hasn't managed before and wants to see, uh, you know, how do you handle, uh, you know, a player that maybe doesn't buy in. How do you handle things when you're in a 12-game losing streak in the middle of June and, and the season's kind of spiraling out of control? How do you get things back on the right uh, track? So uh, how, do you, how do you handle players that are angry about their playing time? I mean, there's a lot of playing time out there to be had. There's not really obvious all-star starters at each position. There's going to be guys upset they're not playing more. Uh, how do you handle that in July? Uh, so yeah, we'll see how he handles it. I'm, you know, I'm, not gonna, I'm certainly uh, thrilled with the hire, and, and I'm open-minded that he's going to be a a really solid manager for them. But, but with any unproven manager, I think there's always going to be a little bit of doubt. But uh, certainly we're hearing all the right things from him in spring training. All right. Well, Max, thanks so much for your time as always. And next time we talk, I'm sure we'll have more stats and stuff to go over from the last couple spring training games. So take care. Yeah, we'll have actual baseball to talk about. It's going to be great. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. There he goes. That's Max Reaper of Royals Review, always giving us such great insight on the boys in blue. And you may not be a big baseball guy, but, man, I don't think anything gets my, my juices pumping more than the sound of the bat and the ball, cleats in the dirt. And, and even though the Royals are not projected to be any world beaters this year, it's baseball. It's opening day. Uh, it's a brand-new season. It's a fresh season. A lot of young guys that will be taking the field for the Royals this year. And so much newness to it. Matt Quattraro, Brian Sweeney, Zach Bovey, you turn back – Guys from the, the hitting staff with Alex Zumwalt, Mike Tosar. I mean, just a complete overhaul of this coaching staff. Paul Hoover as a bench coach. It'll be fun to see where this team could could go because I never want to say it can't get worse. I want to stick with Buddy Bell here and say that it can always get worse. But hopefully for the Rose this year, a little bit of a better start in April to make things interesting over the summer. A big, big thank you to all of our guests tonight. Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Braden Turner of the 8 No Seats podcast. Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network, and Max Reaper of Royals Review. That'll wrap up another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I've been out here at Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino as we are every Wednesday from either 7 to 10 or 8 to 10 p.m. That is exactly where we will be next week at this time. You take it easy, and we will see you next time, Kansas City. One last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer. Closing time, you don't have to go home, but you can.